Leonard Dawson is the richest man in the world. Powerful people make enemies. If an enemy becomes a problem, someone calls the professional. Codename, Golgo 13. Target, former Nazi SS captain, Bernard Mueller. I'll take the job. He never kills for sport. He never misses the mark. And he never gets involved. Can't you let this one go? But this time, it's personal. The hunter has become the hunted. Because this time, he's the target. We found Golgo 13. He's preparing to shoot, sir. Go see if you got him this time. We had him cornered, he was wounded, and yet he was neither captured nor sanctioned. The next time, either he dies or you die. I want to know who's really behind all this. Did you find out who ordered it? I will not tolerate it a third time. Do you understand me? The next time you fail is when you all die. We have only one enemy. Colgo 13. Kill him. No! How long can the professional survive? Speed, rolling, speed, or speeding. People say today. speeding, speeding. You're not speeding. We've had. You're at yeah, speed. Yeah, we've had. <laughs> my pet we've peeve. Had, yeah, we've had you. Uh, you've talked about that before on the pet peeves about that on the beginning of podcasts for people. Um, dun 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 dun. We're back. Fire in your eyes. Uh we're back. Uh this is Dion Baya. And I'm Jay Blake. And it is the fall of twenty twenty, and we haven't missed a beat. <laughs> <laughs> it's December. It's the late November of twenty twenty. The lost episode. Yeah. This is the the lost episode. This is actually we're recording this uh, end of August, beginning of September, twenty twenty two, but we're acting like we haven't hit a beat or missed a beat. Uh, this is Saturday night movie sleepovers. Uh, your place to go take a nap while we watch movies. <laughs> uh, you know, there was at some point over the hiatus, somebody had messaged us asking us if we could release the unreleased material, and I was like, I yeah, and I'm like, wow, and I was like, I don't. I don't think we have any unreleased. But I mean, we released the fog. Was it the fog that was kind of like yeah, that was the, the one episode we did for Patreon? But yeah, said, that oh, was uh, we we don't own our masters. <laughs> <laughs> we were getting paid Cadillacs and and just bright gold jewelry, and we didn't we gave all of our episodes to uh, the the men above us, and we we didn't get any we don't get any residuals from those days. Yeah, I was like, I, we don't. It's not like we recorded a bunch of episodes and just decided, you know, there actually is somewhere a, a lot like a, a, maybe it was that, 
we ended up doing that uh, Lucio Fulci zombie like three times. We did it as a com. We did it as a commentary. Yeah. Then we did one, we did. and like the, the recorder wasn't working right, and we lost it. Okay. Yeah. And, and then we did like a, a second a, one, like an episode proper. But we might have eventually released the the commentary track. Yeah, that commentary has been released because we did that as a test run to see if people would download our comedies, our comedies, our commentaries, <laughs> and they didn't. So we, because we, we, we were going to say, hey, you know, maybe that might be an avenue to go down for us to do release commentaries. We're on the third roar. You have to hit play. <laughs> um, well, we're we're uh, we're back tonight, um, and uh, uh, we're up in the attic, really high up. Um, our parents, uh, I think they just kind of had, they just kind of got fed up with us every other week coming over and utilizing their, uh, big TV or their, their flat screen and their, their living room to let us record. Yeah. You know, rating um, your, your parents are what, like four hours away. My parents are two hours away. So it was a trek getting even to their houses. To, and then, and then you know, we come in unannounced and not want to even hang out with them. We just want to utilize their uh, <laughs> going their up to house. the playroom. Yeah, going up to the going into the basement. Well, don't smell the mildew down there. Jesus, there's 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 thingies everywhere. There's moths everywhere. Uh, so our I think our parents just you know my dad was finally like, what are you doing? What you're in your you're in your forties? <laughs> When's it gonna end? <laughs> Why do you and Blake keep coming over in Ninja Turtles uh, sleeping bag? Is that what you want for Christmas again? You really want me to get you more cops figures? And like, sure, Dad. You know this is all I need. I need the Dick Tracy figures from uh, play, uh, play, uh, play, whatever you call that place, play school. Maybe play school. Who did the the Star Trek figures? They Ninja Turtles, Star Trek, play, play something. Anyway, that joke's ruined. Anyway, so. we stopped recording, but we're back today. We're recording like we haven't missed a beat, and we're we're doing a movie for the ages, uh, a movie that I guess has been deemed a classic by some, others. Contra- I would, I think controversial it, by right? others. Boy, is this <laughs> controversial now that I watch it now. <laughs> I'll tell you, it is okay, rather we, disturbing. We need to. I think we need to. This this movie warrants a disclaimer, and. Uh, does it, Blake? Um, take us to church. What do we got? What are we? What are we doing? Well, what are we going to lay I mean, out? I feel Blake's like... always the one who. Uh, Blake airs on the side of caution. I like to throw caution to the wind, <laughs> as you say, Blake, because I can't really use half my sentence enhancers nowadays. So I have to just really watch what I say. Well, I mean, thinking back on <clears throat> on the caca that we received for uh, falling down. Yeah, it was falling down. Um, I, I feel like this movie also warrants a bit of a disclaimer, considering that uh, people. You do you think is it saw so, is it up is it that saucy or people well, reimagining I, it as a... I think the con I think look we're big on context and although I, I, it it will be weird for us to ignore certain contexts to talk about this movie, I since one here's the disclaimer up front because we're it's not that we're uh. Or unsympathetic, or or ignoring certain aspects of it, but to to dive into this movie in with the nostalgia and the love we have for this movie, we have to ignore a couple of things, or at least they. I don't feel they necessarily apply to the movie. So if you're looking for us to talk about 
these certain things that I'm going to describe and have a, a more contemporary quote unquote, for lack of a better term, woke view on this movie. I don't, maybe you should not listen to the show. <laughs> Blake's opening. He's got a piece of paper. Because, he's clicking out. <laughs> because one, I think since we did Taken, which was the last Luc Besson related movie we did many years ago. Um, no, you mean Fifth Element. Well, we did Fifth Element, but we did Taken also as an episode, and he wrote that and produced it. Oh, that. I forgot. He I for, he didn't direct it, though, did he? No, he didn't direct it. Um, oh, I forgot that he's connected to that. So we've done Fifth Element, and we've done... Well, have we, we haven't even said the movie we're doing yet. No. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know people just blindly <laughs> play on... <laughs> what could this be, pray tell? But since then, Luc Besson has been, quote-unquote, me too and Has he? there are several <laughs> allegations by actresses and women that have claimed that he's raped them and uh, sexually uh, assaulted or, or uh, all the terminology. Like I said, I'm not being unsympathetic. I just don't know the proper wordage for some of this stuff. Um, so please excuse me. And how, me. how um, up to date is that to this recording? Because I don't know any of that. Is I, I, I don't know. It's stuff that I realized after we decided we were going to do this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so there, oh, so there is a bigger elephant in the room than I first sur- uh, 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 surmised. I yeah. guess in a sense, I didn't yeah. realize. So I don't. Is that I, why that Valerian didn't do as well? Is that I did, don't did, know. did that come out? Okay. I don't. I don't know. I don't know the details of all the cases. I know the last I found in researching, he's denied these, you know, these allegations. But I don't know. And uh, some of the women have been named, have come out with their names. Some of them are um, anonymous. Uh, so there's that. So, okay. uh, and the well, other certainly, thing like you is, said, to take light, not to take lightly. I mean, that is a serious thing that to address. Yeah, you if, know, if we're not like they're making these allegations. We're not like celebrating this guy's personal life. We're just talking about no. a movie that we like. Uh, and yeah. the other thing, which I didn't know until now, which uh, it seems crazy, is that at the time that he made this movie, he was engaged to a teenager. Uh, and yeah, she's actually in the movie. She's the like the blonde, the blonde babe, as she's credited, and who's like the, the who's like the heavy mob boss that Leon. We're okay. We're talking about Leon, <laughs> the professional people, but the the mob boss that he goes to, you know, not so much kill, but yeah, he talk to, talk to that the like the people that I, the woman that I think we perceive as maybe a, a prostitute or some that was his yeah I read that in the in the in the uh, doing research for this this was his wife or engaged at the time and I mean I don't mean to be uh, in any way mean or snotty but I always never thought that person was attractive i i, I <laughs> well they certainly not, they're not doing any favors with that either that wig i thought that i thought it was or, a i thought it was someone cross-dressing even i yeah. didn't really realize and i don't look the, <laughs> i'm not trying to make any kind of disparage but it, that i didn't realize that person i never thought of past that and then when we were doing the research i didn't you know like you're saying that they were he was with her up until this movie this was a this was a woman a girl at the time that apparently he met when she was 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. And uh, they either got engaged or married when she was 15. And he was what, like 32, right? By that like... point, he was 32, yeah. So, um, 
And, and we we talk about this in the Fifth Element podcast because when he met Mia Jovovich, yeah, isn't that the same thing? Kind of going, didn't she break up? But maybe that was the, we didn't realize that she, the girl we talked about that in the Fifth Element podcast that he, she, Mia Mila Mila broke up a relationship he was already in because she was yeah. what seventeen at the time or something like that. I think Mila Jovovich might have been like twenty or twenty one. Which was okay. still really young, considering that at that point he was in his mid thirties, I guess. I mean, anyway. So, in the I cont- thought she was younger than that. Yeah, maybe. Um, and that yeah. woman who my Wen is her is her working name. She the is, one from the professional, one from the professional who he was engaged to or married to. Um, she plays the opera singer in Fifth Element. In the oh in, yeah, in the she blue. does, doesn't she? So uh, I think for this movie, it's important to kind of like, especially especially for this movie, considering what yeah. people view as controversial about this movie. In this day and age. Well, I, that certainly feeds into this whole other level of weirdness that I kind of skipped over when I was little because it didn't really maybe. <laughs> well, I was little. When I was a little tyke, when I Way first saw when this I movie. I was like 15 or 16. <laughs> yeah, when I was at the age of that he's seducing these women at the time, it's like um, uh, some of this looking at this now is kind of a lot more creepy. And then like, you know, um, what's interesting with this movie is um, there's a lot of interesting things about this movie, but for us, uh, Americans, it was released over here as the professional. I think it was released here first, and then it maybe was released in Europe. Uh, you know, not soon after or soon after, but he released it in Europe, kind of in a longer cut. I think there's like 25 minutes more in the movie. Uh, in the and then they they call that the international cut, and then it was released over in Europe as Leon. So uh, nowadays it just goes by like Leon the professional. So when we saw it, the leaner version over here some of the uh, intrigue that we're going to talk about wasn't present. It, it was. It just kind of got awkward in certain scenes, uh, which was okay. And then uh, this goes back to kind of why we picked this movie is, you know, uh, in, fil- in film school, you and I went to a convention, and at the convention we found they had the a bootleg of the international version back when stuff was still just on videotape. They maybe had what, like a... Uh, a, a bootleg of the laser disc or something, or maybe the DVD. I don't even know if it, DVDs were. No, I don't think it was they DVD. must have been. It was like either a boot uh, of the v, of a VHS dub or laserdisc dub, and I couldn't remember where we got it. I, I know you bought we it. We got it at the we got it at the one of the New Yorker hotel Fangora things. Like either the time we met Savini or the time we met Russo, it was over there, and we bought it. And uh, yeah, I bought it. I still have it somewhere. And then we came home and we watched it while we were in college. So we were we were in college at the time. We knew each other. We were roommates. Might have been like our sophomore year because I feel like we watched it at the new when you're in your apartment over there, uh, which means nothing for people. But when you were living on an on-campus apartment over there, I think we bought it around that time. And then we watched it. And, um, you know, we always joked about uh, that might have been maybe one of the last times I watched it, really. Yeah. I watched it a lot as the professional in high school. Really dug the movie, had a copy of it, so I watched the shit out of the movie. And then when we got to college, this is uh, you know where we can get into where you and I were like, okay, what do you like? What do you like? And we're like putting our cards on the table, and The Professional was a movie we both enjoyed, and it had a great style to it and stuff. So that was one of the reasons we're like, oh, hey, look. Uh, uh, and I forgot how, because this is, sounds so stupid, and it ages us, but you know, prior to the internet and all that, I don't remember how, you know, you weren't just going on. 
uh, online and finding this stuff out. So I don't know how we figured out that there was an uh, international cut or a director's cut. Yeah, see, Maybe I... there was in a magazine. You know, you're saying that, uh, you know, uh, I couldn't remember where we got it. Because there was also times where we would buy, you know, videos off of people on New York, on the street in New York City. Like, <laughs> yeah, like bootleg, because they would sell bootlegs. Like, you either have, nowadays you have DVDs, but you have stuff and you'd buy like a bootleg of this with VHS yeah. version. Out of like a milk crate or somebody who set up a table on the sidewalk in New York, or we would go to things. Yeah. We got st- the um, the other one that way. What's the Chow Young Fat movie with Marissa Tomei? Oh, yeah, maybe. yeah. Yeah. What's the name of that one? Which I still haven't ever watched to this day because the bootleg was so bad when we bought it. And then, uh, <laughs> Uh, someone who I don't know if we should have lay name nameless stole it from me, and uh, we had to get it back after. And then they also took this movie as well, and uh, it was taken out of our um, when we you and I lived together our our um, our college room, and then it, it showed up upstairs in their room. And I'm like, how? Why do you have this up here? And they're like, oh, I forgot to ask you. I was like, well, some people would call that theft. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> we anyway. may not have even known about it until we saw the. Until we saw the video, and maybe the guy explained what it was, and with a baby. And I, I have two, yeah, because I, I, I have a couple of vivid memories of like walking up to like a, you know, an area where someone's selling bootlegs. They had a TV on in the background, and one of the ones I remember, uh, if this is the same day, they had Life Force on, and they had like the director's cut of Life Force. We're like, oh wow, and I think either you or some that got us into watching life force and watching the director's cut or something. And then I feel like that this was on, on somebody's TV as well. And I was like, Oh, let me get this. And we grab, maybe the person told us, or maybe on the back of the box, it's, it's at my parents' house, the box, maybe it says on the back, there's 25 minutes of extra footage. And that enticed us to watch it. So this has a whole different other, uh, you know, uh, cut. So it's interesting. Cause then when you talk to people from Europe, you know, that's the cut they knew. It wasn't diff- anything different, and they knew it as Leon. It was always this weird thing, and we've talked about they release movies under different names sometimes in other uh, places. Um, it doesn't happen a lot in America. Usually they change it when it leaves America. I don't know why they didn't call it the cleaner or why they called it the professional or why they didn't just call it Leon because if you just said, you know, I, I don't think there's anything against, like, we're not going to understand what it is yeah. or what he isn't. You, you know, like- so I don't know what the title was. You know, we, as Dan kind of in, in, uh, implied or, or said, like, this was a movie that when we first met, um, I think I was 19 and you were 18 maybe. And, uh, you know, when we were getting to know each other, we were put in a tiny room together at, at college, our freshman year. And, uh, when you're asking what kind of things you're into, you're hanging up posters on the walls of your dorm room. Yada, yada. This was a movie that we both uh, really liked. I think so in in a way, you know, why I kind of have always we always talked about doing this movie on the show and we just never kind of got around to it. But because of that, because it was like it's one of those movies, early bonding movies for us and our friendship. You know, it's interesting when you watch it now and I think. So I think for me, when I watch it this time around, because like you said, I haven't seen this movie in maybe 20 years either. Uh, I think it holds up really well. Yeah. I, I think, you know, if we take, if we look back at the 90s, which is when this mid 90s, this movie comes out, we go to college in 97. And uh, because of things like Reservoir Dogs and 
uh, Goodfellas a couple you know, or two before that and then Casino and all the and then Pulp Fiction and then all the the Quentin Tarantino Zoe. the Quentin Tarantino yeah. ripoffs the movies connected to it uh, like Killing Zoe which isn't a ripoff but it's by Roger Avery who co-wrote Pulp Fiction uh, the 90s was really full of this kind of like organized crime there was like this independent wave not to say the Goodfellas and and you know Casino and and stuff were were independent films but there was this like wave of cinema that was very violent and organized crime oriented, the mafia, uh, things like that. And, it, and, you know, being young men, teenagers coming to age in that climate with those kinds of movies, both being of like Italian descent, you know, there was like, there was a thing that I think young men kind of latched onto about this kind of cinema. It like, you know, like Dion said, there was no internet. There wasn't this, there was no streaming services. There wasn't this like extent of, of, you know, limitless options. You know, when you see people, it's still, I still find it crazy when I see that, like, you know, like Seth Meyers on, on late night does Werner Herzog jokes. And it was like, you know, when we started watching Werner Herzog movies in film school in the late 90s, it was like, nobody knew who the hell Werner Herzog was, <laughs> you know. Are people laughing at that stuff now? Or, yeah, like or, people I mean, know is he who... doing it for the sophistication or is it, because I, I feel don't... like there's people who I know nowadays who do not know who Werner Herzog is. Yeah, but there's also like, you know, just like the, the because of the internet and because of the availability of things and because of the way people can communicate now. There's just like the entire world is at your fingertips and including yeah. the cinematic world and cleaning like what you can watch. But when we were kind of coming to age, we were like that. I always say we were like the last of the video store generation. We were like the actual video store generation, whereas like. We're analog to digital as I like to yeah. describe myself. But it's like we were really little when VHS was becoming a thing. And we had our, we were the only, we were the first generation to have basically our entire lifespan be the generation of like to have video stores and be able to rent movies until we became adults. And then there was that switch to streaming and, and, uh, the DVDs, but then, you know, the internet, we, we grew up in a very weird time, uh, an interesting time. Uh, we were like the last of like the latchkey kids and, <laughs> and all these things. But my point a is a great time. My my point is that you know things didn't because of the lack of variety for mainstream video stores and a mainstream audience. It was this weird time where like organized crime and and these kinds of like gritty whether they be independent or studio pictures it was like a it was like a, a a five to six year period where that movie was really big, and this comes out in that period. And, and also, when there's a there's a uh, we're starting to get some foreign influence of like you know uh, John Woo's coming soon, but then like you know Luke Besson being a French director, we're starting to get for around this time. I saw an incredibly fucked up movie called Man by Dog, which is a French pseudo documentary, which is I can kind of put in 
in the kind of world of this later on where it's like you're starting to see these messed up movies that are kind of weird plots and ideas and stuff and yeah you know i feel like that also was an element like you know because it's taking the american mobster idea like you're saying that became big in the early 90s with the success of godfather 3 goodfellas and all those movies and then everybody starts putting their say into it with pulp fiction dropping and all the shootoffs of pulp fiction verse like you're saying now then these and these action movies that have mob influence it was a very interesting time because then that was like we always say the the 80s Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of action movie was kind of faltering and you're having a lot of the also playing out where a lot of the um you know man saves uh th- something from terrorists you know like the diehards or the you know I have diehard on a plane or speed and under siege you know so it was an interesting time what was and this is where the indies were popping out now you know yeah i mean def- i mean obviously there were probably Hollywood was always tapping foreign talent for American movies going back to when all the, the, you know, all the Jews were coming from Europe, you know, with the, with the fear of what the Nazis were going to do. And then they were dishing out like all these amazing horror movies for universal and all that. And, but the nineties with, with this really weird view and this very weird, like niche that was coming out to take someone like Luke Basson, who was, you know, had done just before this had done La Femme Nikita, which had gained some international success and was and then made remade into an American movie with Bridget Fonda. Was that Point of No Return? Is that the name of that movie? Yeah. And then they um, even made it into a U- USA network series for a while. Remember that was I don't think it had any maybe executive produced, but it was yeah. the, that became a series because of the success of Point of No Return. Um, yeah, it just was a, it was a time when like Dion said like America because of I think I think partially because of the success of something like Reservoir Dogs and Quentin Tarantino and Quentin Tarantino at that time being like this golden child of this new age of cinema being very vocal about his influences and pointing to people like John Woo or maybe even being vocal about someone like Luc Besson who in some ways was a contemporary but doing a very interesting, similar kind of style films in in France, that it, it seemed inevitable that, you know, America would start tapping the, these talents like John Woo and Luc Besson to come and hear and do movies. And we, we did Hard Target on the show really early, early on. Oh, which, yeah, we did. And that was his first American movie, which right? Which I think was his first American film. Um, and I guess this is, you know, in, in, in typical... We're also out of practice, but in typical Saturday movie sleep, it's a long way around of getting to the point where, for me, this movie stood out. You know, um, certainly, yeah. Well, because I think it was it was unique enough. It didn't feel like a carbon copy or a or a kind of like because by the time for me, I was in all into all these movies as was you, and uh, you know I still reflect and fondly on a lot of these movies. Uh, even the Goodfellas coming out, I had an affinity for like uh, old-fashioned gangster movies. I was like the Untouchables, the the Brian De Palma movie kind of got me into looking back at you know uh, Al Capone and that era of of gangsters. So um, I something like the Professional was good because maybe it is because a, a foreign, a French director is coming over and having a new take on it. And I'm sure there's other movies we've we've done on this podcast where you could say it's like. Uh, another director coming over, you know, it uh, like it's like John Borman doing like Point Break, uh, Blank, the the um, Lee Marvin movie. It's like 
he's a British director coming over and doing showing an American neo noir. And I think like here with Luc Passant, him coming and doing like a New York City centric movie with these European the soundtrack, how it's cut, some of the editing, I mean the cinematography, shot composition, it's really still to this day, like you said, it kinda of holds up and it's it's refreshing. And I so I found it new and at the time when, you know, you and I are running around, you know, we're into guns or we're into like fighting and you know like war and gi joe and whatever the hell boys are into when you're coming into becoming a teenager um and you and i weren't necessarily and really haven't been gamers per se right i mean we never were really you know sitting and getting the newest like madden or whatever the heck was coming out so uh we dug stuff like this uh you know and um uh you know like i said i watched the shit out of this movie growing up but then after college i hadn't seen it in years and uh, luckily, well, not luckily, but serendipitously, about two or three months ago, I rewatched La Femme Nikita. Uh, I hadn't seen that probably since I saw it on video when it came out, and because uh, I had a copy of it. And rewatching that was interesting because to me, that's a little dated. It's a little more of, you know, uh, weird stuff in there. And I, I like professional better, but it's good to have that as a almost like a. a um, some background work before seeing this movie, refreshing myself with that and where his, you know, Bassan was at the time. Um, yeah, I had also, I always kind of, I haven't seen another movie I haven't seen. These Bassan movies we're talking about are movies that, like, we haven't watched in forever. Like, but even though I don't know if, I guess there was probably a dubbed version of it back then. Things were get dubbed all the time. Um, I think because of Luke Bassan, The Professional, then Fifth Element comes out. La Femme Nikita, you know, that, that's like that, that time when he's like, all of a sudden it's like the flash in the pan. Like he's, you know, he's at the, you know, he's kind of the rising star. You find out that he makes uh, he had made a movie with Christopher Lambert, who we all know that I love. So of course I went and I saw, I rented Subway. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was. What year is that? Is that prior to, um. Yeah, I, that's in These the eighties. I think so. Oh, okay. I think um, I should have looked his um, his career up. I forgot if we touched on that when we did Fifth Element, but I forget what his career trajectory was as a director was. Yeah, um, it's just um, the professional. I think one of the things that holds up about it is that it is certainly the reason why he became kind of like the this action star filmmaker writer director is because he's a he's a filmmaker with an interesting point of view in terms of when he shoots things i mean he's he's got a he's stylistic i mean he's an auteur in that sense and i think what stuck out for me then which i didn't really think about uh you know as a teenager and what i think holds up about it is that it is a, it's it's an american movie they, they speak english it takes place in new york city but it's very European. <laughs> like, sure. Like, it's it's content, the way it's handled. You know, so much of it is, is like, an American filmmaker would not have made this movie. And, and, if, and if given the script for this movie and, and given the assignment to make this movie, would not have made this movie the way this movie, you know, Luc Besson made this movie. So it, it, it's very unique. And like you were saying, it kind of, it stood out from the other kinds of movies that were coming out in that time. And I think as someone who was a developing cinephile at the time and, and wanting to pursue filmmaking and, and as a teenager and thinking about going to film school and even, you know, th 
thinking of thinking that I was somebody who had this like vast knowledge of film or this open view and and looking for things that were interesting, but it being the '90s and being so isolated and actually unable to really scratch the surface on anything outside of the United States, for, certainly uh, for the most part. Uh, and then even having limitations of how far back you could go because you just had what your local video store had in stock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you couldn't really, you couldn't really, I mean, at most you might be able to get some sort of weird catalog that maybe had, you know, some cool t-shirts, bootleg movies or posters, but you know, then you're paying astronomical rates and stuff. And that's even if you knew that there was stuff out there. So our ignorance was also a lot to do with, we didn't even know what was at our fingertips if we had the 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 avenue to to procure it yeah but even then i think what stood out to me about this movie and why i really enjoyed this movie then uh and why i fucking excuse my language i loved it this time around is that sensitivity like at the end yeah. of the day even then like my mom liked this movie you know when i would watch it my mom i'm sure i've talked about on the show many times my mom would watch Whatever I was into, my mom would sit and watch it with me. It Blake wasn't... made her watch freaking Texas Chainsaw Massacre with him. <laughs> the thing, whether it was the thing or, or watching Star Wars movies or watching Rocky movies or watching Texas Chainsaw. Whatever I was into, it wasn't like it, it was never like this. Like, I want to see what you're watching. It was like I would watch it. The TV was in the like the family room. That's where the VCR was. I would watch it and then she would come and sit down and she'd watch it. Uh, but she always loved this movie and it's because it's a love story. It's an unconventional love story, but at the end of the day, that's what it is. And as an old softy now, like all of that, like holds up for me now as a teenager, as Dion kind of explained, like we had never seen the international cut. We didn't even know an international cut existed. We, we were given this cut of a movie and we watched it. When we watched the international cut in college, I remember not liking it, like not mm, like, yeah. like not liking that version of the movie. I didn't remember a lot of what was cut out. I remembered like the big scenes that had to do with her sexual advances. That and was being, our, used to be our joke, um, you know. Uh, have sex with me, Leon. No, Matilda. <laughs> that was all we had. That's what we remembered from it. Those extended scenes. Yeah, or like the, him, you know. the scene in the in the restaurant. And yeah. It, and to me, and even now, I look at it and I think those scenes aren't needed. Like yeah. it does. His backstory's in there too. You know, like you have this. You have a scene that's his exposition about how he got over here and what happened to him, and them certainly. Uh, coming together, uh, some great acting with her in the restaurant where she gets kind of like drunk off the champagne and laughing, and even the in, in the development of the relationship between Danny Aiello, God bless him, God rest his soul, and uh, uh, Natalie Portman, and uh, what's his face too, the three of them, their, their dichotomy, you know. Yeah. So it's like that stuff. Um, you know, you could see why it was cut, but it does lend yourself a little more. It kind of does frame out a little better, the you know what's going on and stuff. Well, what it what it does those scenes because basically for people that 
you know, maybe they don't know. Maybe they've only seen this international cut and they never saw the American cut. Or maybe they've only seen the American cut and they've never seen the international cut. Maybe you've never seen the movie at all. And uh, if, if that's the case, I suggest you watch it before. <laughs> yeah, you should go watch, stop down and go watch. Watch before. And if you watch it on something like Netflix, you're going to have just the American cut. It doesn't have the international cut. So I wonder, I don't, want, I don't know how readily available. Evidently, to, to my astoundment, no one buys DVDs or Blu-rays anymore. So it's like, I don't know how, however you get your movies, I guess it's a download or whatever, or you find it on a service. So I don't know how, you know, by default, what movie you're going to be presented with. If you go watch the new Warriors, the old Warriors movie, you're going to get the Walter Hill cut, or are you going to get the cut we grew up with? I don't know how these yeah. things are delivered to you nowadays, you know, so. But basically, for the people that are familiar or unfamiliar there's the international cut for the most part, not entirely, is like this, like 20, there's like 25 extra minutes. And I'd say 20 of those minutes are just a minute, like just a chunk of the movie in the middle, just lifted. Yeah. Like act two, which kind of always for me kind of dragged when I watched it little, when you leave Gary Oldman to when Gary Oldman comes back again, that middle of her wanting to become a cleaner and him taking her under his wing and that kind of stuff that I always kind of dragged. I, I knew it was needed and it was good, but, and then I guess that's where you're saying this was just cut right out. They yeah, just took it out, stitched. <laughs> it was like, they just lifted a chunk out and they stitched it. And then they took an, another controversial scene a little bit later and le- then lifted that out. But that's, those are the main chunks that are kind of lifted out of the movie. And what happens in that 20-minute chunk or so in the middle is we establish her more of Leon trying to train her to be a cleaner. So there's, like, this montage where they have, like, this scam that they're running on the people um, that they they hit. Which is incredibly disturbed. I don't know why it disturbed me watching that now. Yeah. The level of well, we didn't that have she it actively. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. <laughs> but it's but the, the idea that it's in the not we have the implication in the in the or the original version we watched that she wants to become a cleaner and she wants to avenge her her yeah. her family that's killed. But um, maybe because we'd only watched it once or twice, it never it's settled in with me that then in this international cut that she's participating in these killings. So yeah. it's all, you're almost getting that, which kind of disturbed me about um, natural born killers. Like I don't like those kind of stories where the people are, you know, going door to door like the torture porn kind of movies. And um, this, I mean, you could make an argument maybe these people deserve what they're getting, but it's just it's a disturbing idea to me uh, that you know she's completely on board and like you're saying they're running the scam where he she's helping him, you know, generate all this profit and this is why he's you know he's getting all this work that Danny Aiello's taking the money and all that stuff. So. Uh, it's yeah. another level of the insanity. I mean, we do, if I recall correctly, in the in the American cut, we do see there's the scene with the sniper rifle. Yeah, which was, and they handle it very well because you don't realize that almost, this is why I said it kind of gets into me like the man bites dog territory. In the, in the middle 90s, you were getting some weird movies coming over here. Uh, another one later on, Irreversible. Like there's some movies that are just really messed up with these kind of ideas and, and, you know, you don't really know. He's like, okay, you ready? And then, you know, it, she she gets a sniper rifle, and all of a sudden you think she's going to randomly start killing people. And, you know, she's like, no women, no kids, right? And he's like, right. So if he had said no, because you see her, like, going over the playground, like, would she have tried to shoot a kid? But then you realize, oh, it's paint or whatever. He's yeah. shooting paintballs or stuff. But the but it's done really well where the audience doesn't know until that point what's really going to happen. 
But it's also like there's a distance in that scene. There's the like, this is the first thing you learn as you get more experienced and better. Then you get closer to the client until finally you learn how to use a knife. And it's a scene where, yeah, he's teaching her, but he's teaching her at a safe distance. And there's just primarily what the stuff that gets cut out is, whether it's the this montage of them doing hits together or these more kind of like sexually charged uh, mm. uh, innuendo that in, in the scenes is it subtracts from the innocence of the Matilda character. Both of them do uh, the way, you know, to, the way I always viewed the movie and even how I view the movie now, even having now watched the international, having seen all the international stuff cut out is yes. Like there's an uncomfortability to scenes, even in the American cut, but Leon is uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Like the way I always viewed the movie, even as a teenager is that it's this movie about two people who are completely alone, who don't really know how to love. And they love each other. And she doesn't know what that means. And she's coming from an environment that's kind of sexually charged. In the first scene of the movie, first scene, in her first scene, we see that she sees her father having sex with her stepmom in the bathroom. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I wouldn't be I wouldn't be uh, surprised if there is some sort of implication we missed that like he's maybe even abusing her. You know, who sexually because he's he's being violent. He's hitting her. You see, and you know she's getting black and blues from her dad. She's definitely and stuff. being. So abused. he's coming from an unliving household. She's definitely being bu- abused in some fashion. And yeah. so we have this girl who has no real sense. The only the only person she the only thing she loves is her little brother. And. That's a very maternal love that she has for her. She even says to Leanne, she's like, I was more of a mother to him than, you know, yeah. that woman was. So she, And she, he's not corrupted yet by society. He's still innocent. So he's kind of yeah, still. He never did anything represents. bad to anybody, you know? Yeah. And she, it's a very maternal love, which is a totally different kind of feeling than, you know, loving somebody romantically or even just like love. She like, she has a sister, but she doesn't love her. Like she doesn't know any other kind of love than that. So you can understand even as a teenager watching this movie that her feelings of love toward Leon are confusing and she doesn't, yeah, know she doesn't how, even understand them. She doesn't yeah. know how to interpret them. And because of her upbringing, she is, more sexually advanced in a certain way. At least she perceives she does. She's the woman. She's a girl who thinks she knows about sex, but doesn't, but she plays, she's kind of a little bit advanced behind her years and beyond her years. And she's, she's using it to be provocative. She does it to the, the, the guy at the counter at the hotel when they go to stay. Yeah. You know, she's a good character actor. That guy, she's, she's, going up to a line and she's crossing it to see how far she can go to, to needle people. She's a smart girl, but she's confused about her uh, feelings. Whereas Leon is an adult, but emotionally stunted, you know, 
And so in a weird way, they're kind of meeting in a, in a weird middle ground where he's can like, especially in the American cup where we don't know this love story that he had. I mean, we get a, a sense of, you know, Danny Aiello's characters. Like when he came to me, you were wet behind the ears and all that was because of a girl. But, you know, we don't know about like in the American cut of this like love affair that he had with someone in, in the old country. My point is like, yes, there's things that are uncomfortable about their relationship, but I never for a second then or now feel like Leon ever has any intention of doing anything inappropriate with her. <laughs> well, that's a really great decision for, you know, if that's true that John Renault actively played his character. He's, you know, I read that he played it a little simple so that the audience would never think that he'd be putting, you know, that they would never question him in, in the situations with her in any other kind of way. And that also is very smart in a sense of how you form the, these situations because, you kind of trust him if he is a little um, uh, 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 slow or you know on the spectrum or is a little stunted for whatever reason, uh, and he has a talent and that he does very well. That you know, and then maybe he, you know he doesn't him himself. He comes from like you're saying a, 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 a background that's very awkward about his sexual whatever his oppression or how he's been not been able to have a proper girlfriend or woman. And then the American version certainly not really telling you anything about, uh, I, I kind of almost like that better. I mean, I do like learning about his backstory, but I do like the idea of not knowing so that it's kind of more, it's more innocent, his relationship with her. Um, it is interesting that Luc Besant wrote this as well. Cause they say this came out of when he did the other movie, you know, uh, you have the cleaner in that for a scene or two comes and cleans up the damage. The for, uh, yeah. And, um, and he liked that so much, uh, that character that's, you know, quick that this could be almost like the Vic Vega in the Vince Vega, you know, this could maybe be the, the cousin in America doing the same kind of work. And we can expand on that a little better, but that guy does not seem to be the same guy, you know, uh, that cleaner is not, you know, I wouldn't trust that cleaner with Matilda because that cleaner would just kill, he would probably kill her that night. He walks up to her when she's sleeping yeah. and get rid of her. Uh, but uh, it's interesting. He write, he wrote this movie uh, and this, this was also, he was already evidently getting underway with uh, fifth element. So he wanted to keep going. And so he had this movie come out to be a filler and it ends up being what we're talking about today. And it's not just a filler movie. It's a classic now, but him penning this himself and all this other stuff you're talking about, this me too stuff, you know, evidently in the original script, he, uh, they, they, they do have sex. And, well, uh, that's, a, that, that is unclear. There are websites that have posted the, what they claim are pieces of the original script. From anything I found, like there, the truth is like we really don't know whether that was something that is actual or not, you know, like or somebody just posted. My point is like I don't, at least from what the information I found, I don't, I don't know. I can't say like one hundred percent sure that th those kinds of things were are one hundred percent true. What it says online here, it says, uh, quote from the original crypt, she stands up and modestly gets off her briefs without taking off her dress. Leon cries, unable to oppose her. Matilda is so young, but she's also too beautiful and lovely and sweet and tender. She sweetly, very sweetly gets on him. Leon embraces her. It's full happiness, shame, so many emotions he can't control very well. 
hell, but hell, how beautiful she is seeing seeing them make sweet love. So um, you're saying this? We don't know if this is actually yeah. confirmed to be in the original spec script that he wrote, or just um, somebody. I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it oh, very right. well could be. Certainly not in the scene when they started casting, uh, because there's all kinds of talks about like Natalie Portman's parents, what they said were okay, what she could do, what she couldn't do. Um, but just take like one step back. Um, the it's an interesting relationship because Leon is certainly a predator because he hunts. He basically hunts people for for a living. But we never get any inclination, not even the slightest, that he's a sexual predator. And no, never. I think he's it's, it's almost like he lives a life of celibacy, not even thinking about that, and his only friend is this plant, and it's almost like he doesn't have to worry about those urges or because he... He has this outlet, which is killing or and cleaning. So, and so even though like he's teaching her, he's in a mentor position, teaching her how to be a cleaner. Um, she's the one that's actually in control of that relationship. You know, she's kind of lays down the rules. She kind of makes herself at home. Like he, <laughs> she barges, barges into his life and disrupts it. But, at the end of the day, like, she's the one, like, let's play a game. And he plays the game, you know, like. Yeah, she knows what she wants. And even all that stuff, too, you know, when they're playing the game, the dress-up game, it's like all the characters she dresses up with until the, she's trying to dumb down. It's like they're very sexualized. It's Madonna or it's Marilyn Monroe being very sexy. And then she has to go for chat. He doesn't even know Chaplin, I think. But then he gets Gene Kelly. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it's just, yeah, it's it's she's certainly in control, knows what she wants, and is leading the the uh, the relationship in a certain way, and then I guess that's you know the ignorance of youth that she doesn't realize the full cap- cap- capacity. I mean, I could be very easily see her character becoming living on the streets had she not met Leon and her family had not died. Maybe she would become some sort of prostitute or a drug addict or something like that. The world that she was being led into because of her family upbringing, and uh, uh, it's just it's there's a lot of. You know, getting in the world of, of of porn and people's desires. I mean, there's a lot of w- w- interesting, or interesting in the sense of just uh, weird um, ideas and concepts that are kind of being formulated in here. Um, and this was a time when you could get away with that. I mean, this is some of these deleted scenes kind of look like they belong belong like Lolita more than like a. A movie like this. So, I mean, nowadays, how you so many people tip their toes on the what you put in the movies and how you even approach certain things. I don't know how you do this the same way, the right way. If you do it less or more, uh, it certainly is very um, uh, controversial. So, uh, it's just it's interesting, not just the concepts presented in this movie, but because they're coming from a person who that we know we're talking about is a person who does like women on the younger side, on the yeah. spectrum of the Jerry Lee Lewis young, <laughs> you know, like, you know, 13, 14, 15, yeah. you know, or whatever. And then he's breaking up relationships because he's going with younger women. He was with that other girl, you know, that we talked about. And then uh, Mila comes in and takes over and she's with him for a number of years. And then I think if you, you're the one who hit me to this when we did the fifth element podcast, I think he left her for a younger girl, didn't he? 
Yeah, uh, I don't know. Um, I don't, at some point, I don't remember. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, look, you know. So he's 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 adopting these ideas since he wrote this. He's putting these kind of ideas that are wrapping around in his brain into this story, and it, and I I do think he does it in a fantastic way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you I know? think from what I've heard, allegedly, like anything that was controversial, deemed controversial about the movie here, and the reason why those scenes got cut out, like. Like a French audience didn't think anything was weird about the movie. And that's that's something we have to really understand too. That coming from a not sexualized, but coming from Europe and France in particular, where you do have it's more of an open society of these concepts and these kind of themes we're talking about. That this isn't that bad for for stuff like that. I mean, even like you look at like Once Upon a Time in America. You know, isn't there scenes when when he's meeting in the flashback with the girl, and they're like, you know, there's, you know, he's having sex, the kids having sex with the older, younger girl. You know, it's like there's kind of, yeah. there's these things that are presented better from, I don't know, not not foreigners, but from well, I uh, just, directors or people from other, you know, look, I don't cultures I, that I don't. I'm not French. I don't know <laughs> what what's kosher there and what's not. You know, but. I think there's a chance that we have to take into account that, you know, regionally, culturally, there are different views on sex and sexual relationships than we we have. And look, you know, Matilda's like 11, 12. I can't see that in any realm, like it's, if they had a sexual relationship in the movie, that that would be deemed okay. But... You know, Luke Besson having a relationship, marrying or engaged, getting engaged with a girl who's 15. I don't know if in real life, I don't know wh- how that's perceived in France. The cultural norm. Yeah. yeah. Like I do know, surprisingly, and I only know this because I, I did do a guest spot on a, on like a live stream discussion about Dario Argento's movie Trauma, where Asi Argento is 17 in the movie and has a relationship with a man in his 20s in the movie. That, like, in the majority of this country, age of consent is actually 16. In this country being America. You, being the United States. Like, it's actually, yeah. like, 17, I think, is the, is, like the, is the majority of the country. 18 is the minority of the country. And 16 is, like, somewhere in the middle. So, I mean, we and think... I, I, I'm sorry, finish your thoughts. I was going to say, so, like, I think we inherently think, like... You have to be 18 to be able to give sexual consent to someone over 18. But the truth is, even here, in many states, it's 16, which is only one year older than 15. And I'm not condoning it. I'm not saying what, (laughs) you know, Luke Besson's relationship with this 15-year-old girl is, you know, should be considered legitimate and looked at. I don't know anything about it. I certainly wouldn't do it. But I'm just saying, like... And this is where we get into trouble with people that have like very strong views on other things. I'm just saying, like, I don't know. So when we look at a movie like this, we sometimes do have to separate like our preconceived notions of what's considered appropriate. And this movie, not as much because, like I said, she's really young. But that's why I said the disclaimer in the beginning. It's like we can't really apply what is going on in his personal life to this movie too much. We kind of have to look at it in its own vacuum of like, well, we're, we're viewing the movie on a certain level. That's kind of what we try to do with, with falling down. We try to present every side and not 
say we agree or disagree. We just try to rationalize or explain the context of the situation. Back in the day, you know, that's what they, they joke about in Smokey and the Bandit. You know, if you take a girl across state lines, that's the man act. I think if she's under 18 or something like that, you know, that's how they used to get people. I think they got Chuck Berry that way or, or you know, but certainly back in the, this is again, in your line of talking, this, I'm not condoning or trying to justify anything. I'm just trying to give, um, ex, ex, extenuating kind of uh, uh, knowledge where it's in the old days, you know, people were, would get married young, 17, 18 people would get married, have start a family then. And that was kind of the, the, the time when you get married, have kids and then get on with your life where nowadays that's starting to be certainly a lot older now. So up until the 50s, 60s and 70s, you know, people, you know, an 18 year old dating a 16 year old was kind of normal or a 17 year old dating a 15 year old or whatever. Uh, it got a little weird when people below 16, you know, you always hear those jokes about like people, a musician would get in trouble and he's like, I thought she was 16, but she was 14 or she was 13, you know, but she looked so old for her age. So there was, a time when you know people were getting in trouble with these kind of things because of 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 these gray areas um it is certainly in this day and age kind of uh a, a huge taboo and that's why it, it it the the kind of the it goes with like that again i bring up that man bites dog that really messed up documentary it's like there were the the time when you were having these kind of weird uh, ideas posited in these kind of movies and as a teenager or a young adult watching this it didn't really yeah she's young and she you could tell she digs him you know and he's like no matilda but it's like now when you watch it being a grown-up and having a whole lifetime of memories behind you it's like you know it's it, it's fascinating it's it is kind of like lolita you know that could that that book and movie well, even here uh, in the 90s i don't know if it was the 90s or the early 2000s i think it was in the 90s like uh, and again, like take this with a grain of salt, but my recollection is with that, like even there was a period of time where even like Jerry Seinfeld was dating a girl that was in high school, <laughs> like she was like sixteen yeah. or seventeen. Uh, and it's not out of the norm. I mean, people like. I mean, you know, uh, how old was um, Elvis when he married Priscilla? Right? Wasn't yeah. she young? Wasn't she like, you know? And and uh, I think, am I right? Jerry Lee Lewis has he been with that girl all his life? Right? I don't They've been know. married for. It was like his cousin. I thought they were. Yeah, you know, and and then you know we laugh. Oh, it's his cousin. But people back in the day, if you didn't, if you only had you know uh, uh, ten, fifteen people surrounding you where you lived, you might marry your cousin. You know, <laughs> you know, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like because you didn't have a you, you you again. People have to think about today. It's like not with the internet, with not with transportation, with buses, trains, cars. Who knows what your exposure of maybe you wouldn't leave your town or your village. You know, as far as you'd go, might be down the road to the big city that you go in once a month or a year and come back, and then you just live in the valley or the town or wherever you lived. So it's very different experiences. And then French, you know, I've always been under the impression that it's more of a, uh, a sexual, a sexualized kind of society where they do embrace different kind of things. So at least relaxed. having that background, certainly more, yeah, uh, you know, more relaxed than here. And there's, there's concepts that are talked about, and I'm sure there's other examples. Like I said, the one that I remember is the backstory of Once Upon a Time in America, but I'm sure there's other books and movies where there are, you know, ideas of people young having sexual relations and stuff like that. And then the taboo of, you know, the, you know, maybe the teacher and the pupil kind of a thing. And then on a really weird side note, which I don't know if people want to admit, but my friends and I sometimes joke about at work how odd it is. If you, if, if, 
you go on to these uh, adult websites nowadays to, to find your pornification, uh, you're getting marketed with all these weird taboo, incestual freaking, and it's like, you know, you, you think you're a weirdo. You're like, I didn't type this in, and they're just coming up in the feed. And I said, and somebody said it to me a couple of years ago. I'm like, that's happening to me too. And it's not, it's not, I was like, I thought they were trying to pigeonhole me, and the algorithm is sending me like, you know, taboo videos or whatever the hell. And it's like, no, that this is, you know, so I, it's just, it's, these are weird concepts and stuff. And, uh, but it's, with, with all that said, yeah. Uh, one of the things Good night, that, everybody. <laughs> you know, like I, that I said about, you know, my kind of the introduction to this part of the movie is that like, none of that ever really applied to me. Like, obviously everybody's allowed to interpret a movie and art the, the way that the, you know, what, what didn't, the, what that, didn't that, the, there, there is something inappropriate and sexual about oh, this relationship. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually think it's a plus for the movie. I mean, it adds to a great story. I mean, it's a, you know, it's I'm not a, judging it, it. It's a beautiful, in my opinion, like this beautiful, like complicated relationship and this, this yeah. odd, unconventional love story. And, uh, even watching it this time, like the end of that, like in the movie when he puts her in the hole, like that, like oh, yeah. that scene, oh. like breaks my heart, you know, because yeah. she is this little girl, and she's like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to lose you, you know. It's like because, like he's, he's her best friend, he's her crush, he's her father yeah. at that point. Like yeah. it, she, he's everything to her, and. Yeah. Uh, it's br- heartbreaking. I mean, I didn't tear up, you know, and I'm an, I'm an easy, uh, I'm an easy crier these days. Sure. Oh, but I am too. But it certainly broke my heart. It's a, yeah. Uh, she wasn't as good in the, it as I, and as I, as I remembered, she has moments of like really great authenticity. Uh, but overall, like she, in my head, she was like, I was like, she was never as good as she was in that movie. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe still, but, uh, and her first role too. Was yeah. That, I guess there's something well. about like yeah. the innocence of youth, uh, where sometimes a performance is just so beautiful because it's not tainted by anything yet. It's make believe and kids are great. At yeah. That. Uh, Jean Renault, fantastic performance. Like the fact that they're so good in it. And that their chemistry is so good together sells this movie in a way that it's in, in some ways it's, you know, this movie's lightning in a bottle, you know? The- well, I never even thought of that when I was little. And then maybe that was because it's, I think credit on his part that, uh, the movie works so well because of the relationship, because of how he plays it, because of his choices he made, because he's such a good actor, because, you know, and, and cause you, I would take for granted if I had not seen him in anything else. That's how he is in regular yeah. life. It's totally but then when authentic. you go watch, yeah, I, we just I, I rewatched the first Mission Impossible movie two weeks ago or so, the the Brian De Palma one with Tom Cruise, and he's in that, and like you know, he's a scumbag, he's a dirty assassin in that, and then same thing when he's in uh, La Femme Nikita in the other movie, um, you know, Ronin too. And so it's like you know, he he is a very good actor doing different things, but in this movie, I completely believe him being a. Uh, you know, kind of a an, an innocent guy in this respect that's you know doesn't want to 
do anything awkward with her, but is looking out for her best wishes and, and wants to do something good at the end of the day. Um, and I agree with you going back to, you know, uh, three hours ago, what you said about, um, uh, I, you know, the, the, one of the things that I do love about this is that I, that when I remember when I was little watching this was the style of it. It is the European style they bring in. If they tried to do it with another uh, director, it probably would have been like a point no return. It would have been a more Hollywood polished kind of a movie. Um, there's certain sequences with the music in this. I always loved his music, um, uh, the soundtrack. And I think it might be the same guy who does as well. Um, uh, fifth element, um, Eric Sarah is his name. Is that his name? Uh, the, um, uh, I love the percussion. I love the sound that kind of like, uh, industrial kind of in the background. And you get a lot of that in the fifth element too. And there's these sequences in the montages, like when, when they're holed up in the apartment at the end and he's trying to get her to go down that chute and you see around the corner, them bring in the gun with the grenade launcher on the end of it. And the music crescendos there. It's so artsy European sounding that, yeah, yeah it has this foreign style that wouldn't be present had it not been from, you know, this Frenchman, Luc Besson's hands bringing it in. And I think those are all highlights that for me as a kid in now kind of made it stand up and be uh, uh, different from the run of the mill movies we were seeing at the time, but different in a positive respect that made me really enjoy it and think there was something behind it and want to, you know, made it good for rewatches. Yeah. I mean, the, the score is kind of brilliant. It doesn't ever, you know, it doesn't ever distract, but there are like watching it this time, you notice there's like some kind of like Middle Eastern rhythms going on, which yeah. gives it like a very interesting vibe that I don't think and then, an American Hollywood like, movie would have. Like you're saying, no, and, and and I'm a sucker for like strings, and like you know when you get something like a nice movement with strings and it comes up in a crescendo, like uh, maybe it's Leon's theme, or I, I I was hearing a particular cue that was being played and built up certain parts of the movie. And there's a certain scenes when they bring the strings in and it's very apparatic and it's almost like lovely. Like I was really digging it, you know, almost to add to the tension and even like the heartbreak in certain scenes. So uh, I think the soundtrack was a bang up job, but it always added to, for me, the level of, I don't know, foreignness to it. I didn't realize that um, when researching this, that the majority of the interiors, certainly the apartments were all shot in Paris on sets. So I guess that makes sense because it's a French production and stuff. So they'd shoot the interiors or whatever they didn't need, uh, or what they didn't need to shoot in New York city in France. So, um, I think that's her, interesting and it lends itself to the style. I think her apartment her, like her family apartment. I mean, certainly the stairwell is the Chelsea hotel no, that's, in New yeah. York. And yeah. I think, and I think her apartment was shot in somewhere in New York. But yeah, all of Leon's apartments, all the other apartments that they they live in uh, later in the movie, are were shot in France. Yeah, uh, it it amazes to me since we're talking about locations that at the beginning where they're living, I didn't realize is right there on Ninety Seventh and Park Avenue in Manhattan, which is kind of like uh, the beginning of Harlem. But that is uh, if you're a commuter into New York City. Uh, I you can take subways, of course, or you can take the train Metro North, which takes you to north to either Connecticut or to New York State. Um, when you come into the city, you're above ground and then you come through Harlem. You stop at 125th Street. It's elevated at 97th Street. That's the point where you go underground and you go for about 10 minutes under the city till you get to Grand Central Terminal where it ends at 42nd Street. And uh 
I didn't realize right there in 97th, you see in the shot when he comes out, you could see the train. It's a new uh, red New Haven line train going in to the, and coming out. That's right where that is. So I would pass that every day as a commuter, not realizing that was the, uh, the location for that. And that's also kind of where um, below 97th Street, it's all steam heating because of years ago when they were having issues with um, blizzards and stuff like that. You know, everything was converted to steam. So uh, all the buildings south of 97th Street get steam heating. That's why you always see, like, you know, with the, the steam coming out of the, the, you know, the sewer grates and all that stuff because it's all steam below 97th Street. But I didn't realize that location was right there. So that's so crazy to think, oh, I'm a, such a sucker for... Uh, as I've always said on this, like, you know, knowing the place or passing the place. Every, so, for, so for the past 20 years, I've been passing that on my daily commute uh, up until COVID going in that, you know, taking the train in. And that's, you know, right before Blake knows from taking it in, you know, you know, when you go into the tunnel there, you know, it's about 10 minutes until you're getting into Grand Central. Got to get ready to go and go wherever you got to go. Get off the train. Yeah. Um, well, now that's amazing, too. Well, having you now having you know lived in the city for you know, a decade or so. I don't know how when it is I exactly moved in, but spending a lot of time here even before I lived here. It's very much now when I watch things, you know, like I've been watching. You recognize stuff instantly. Yeah. Or like, oh, that's, that looks like, you know, even if it's decades ago, you can just tell. Yeah. I've been watching, um, before I go to bed every night, I've been watching Taxi. Oh, great show. Which, by the way, is (laughs) genuinely funny. But there's all these yeah. interstitial parts where, like, they just have like footage of a cab driving through New York, and it's always yeah. like, "Oh, that looks like Eighth Avenue." Or I was watching Tootsie recently, which takes place in New York, and there's a shot, and I was like, "Oh, that's Ninth Avenue, like right by my apartment." Like I recognize that's that's like the bridge where the buses come out of Port Authority. You know, they've crossed Ninth yeah. Avenue on that, and uh, so watching this now, even though it's the '90s, and it's just a few years before we're going to go to school and be visiting New York as students to pick up equipment and stuff. Oh, it was... <laughs> but as I'm watching that and I see their apartment, I was like, where is that? Because that looks really familiar, but that looks like it's uptown. Like, for me, it's like, that looks like the east side. That looks like Upper East Side. That looks like... Like, I I might not know the exact location, but I can tell, like, around where it is. And I was like, that looks like it's, you know, up in the 90s somewhere. And I looked it up and I saw where it was. Uh, Dan Aiello's restaurant well this is the weird thing because you and i used to um when we would go to hero boy on 38th 37th and 9th avenue we'd go there which is sadly closed i don't know if we've told people but it's it wasn't it was a survivor of it didn't survive covid and it, it closed down maybe about a year ago but we would go there all the time and get sandwiches and i you remember that we used to to, to joke that across the street, we're like, that looks exactly like uh, Danny Aiello's spot from The Professional. We're like, yeah, it does. And then doing research here, this is what you were going to say, yeah, right? That it is. Yeah, it's. it's that, I mean, it's unfortunately, that it's, building's not there anymore. It's a new. Yeah, building. they knocked the building down. They knocked the building down and put up a, a nice new shiny building. Um, but that, where his restaurant is, was like almost catty corner to to where Hero Boy was, which was a, a restaurant, a sub shop that we used to go to. A Manganero's Hero Boy. Look it up. There was a Manganero's there since like 1902. And then it That's closed terrible. in uh, yeah, during, over uh, COVID. Uh, but it's also like 
a stone's throw away from my apartment, that location. <laughs> you know? And it's weird because if you watch the beginning of the movie where they're leading you on those shots, they're going to Little Italy. So you see them go to Chinatown and then they hit like Mott Street, Little Italy, and they lead you to believe like, you know, either they're going to find like Gizmo, you know, in fucking Key Luke, you know, in that little Chinese <laughs> Chinatown shop, or, you know, they go in, you know, on like Dry- Dyer Street. Uh, they go in and you think that that place is going to be somewhere hidden in like a bottleneck street down in uh, Little Italy, uh, yeah. surrounded by Chinatown, but it's not. It's right over there on the west side, that that storefront where up until um, it got knocked down. I mean, it's sad. Even the bodega that I just said was on 97th and Park that was next to where um, her apartment's supposed to be, the exterior, that closed in 2015. So maybe, hell, maybe you and I should open a bodega <laughs> right you know, and become a bo- – yeah, we can call it Leon's Bodega, and that could be like – <laughs> Well, all one stuff of, in it. Also, like there was one of the hotels that they go into. I can't remember at, at one point which point when they move when he she fires out the window or when she comes on to the guy or, you know, is provocative with the guy in the lobby. One of those I was like looking at. It's like where is that? I was like that looks like it's really close, like Eighth Avenue or Seventh Avenue, and it yeah. was like Seventh and Forty Second, which again is you know in my neighborhood. So it, it was interesting having watched this movie now having lived here for so many years and not having seen it since before I moved into the city to be like, like, I know where that is. Like I can, I can recognize that area. It's so reminiscent of the era too, because within this is 94 within five years or three years, we were going into the city to, to, to either go shopping and buy movies or buy uh, supplies for film school, film and, and other kind of stuff we needed. So to me, it is the era of New York City that we were walking around, going around, like people, how people are dressed and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it looks the same to me. You know, the past 20 years, uh, up until recently, the city's kind of always looked the same. Um, so there has been, in the past 15 so years, there's been an onslaught of building. They've been building new buildings, taking stuff down and stuff, and renovating the city and changing the skyline. But uh, this is an era where uh, it, uh, very reminiscent a lot of it, and it looks to me, aside from like the uh, caprices and the Crown Vicks and the like, taxi cabs that are kind of um, uh, dating the the movie. Uh, it's it, a lot of it looks to me like it's it's you know I, that I see every day when I'm walking to my job in Manhattan. So uh, it's kind of fulfilling. I didn't know that that was um, uh, Chelsea Hotel either. You know where. Gary Oldman also shot Sid and Nancy because uh, famously, you know, uh, Sid Vicious, I think, might have OD'd in there with his girlfriend, Nancy, too. So I've never been in the Chelsea. I've walked past it. So I didn't know that was the interior. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, a, it has that interior on a side kind of note, akin to the uh, on a that, side note, just that movie? a quick little ex- just a quick suggest like a uh, recommendation, which is kind of linked to what yeah. you were just talking to. There's a documentary. Uh, that I just recently watched, which is fairly recent, even though they st- it looks like they had been shooting it for a long time, uh, called The Automat. And I think you would oh, you would love it. It's all about the oh, history. You know me and automats. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the history of The Automat, how it started in Philadelphia, then it, uh, in America, the history of The Automat in America, because uh, it was kind of based on a European concept, but how it started in Philadelphia, and then they opened up ones in New York. And so it's all about, the history of the automat in America, and, the so, la- and that's really obsessed me because the last automat didn't it close like in two thousand or something or ninety seven. It was in the nineties. It was in the nineties, and so that's why like, I feel like it was if we'd right known you and I could have went. I know it was near we went to the automat. The last one was near 
that location that I was just talking about, like that was seventh and forty second, that hotel. Yeah, there was one on forty second. There was there. one on like but the last one that closed was at like thirty ninth and seventh, which was just like a couple of like two or three blocks right by right probably right near the um the hot dog place, the like uh, a, halal or not well like a block one of those. Just like a block probably east of uh Midtown. A Midtown Comics, Comics? yeah. Where that where the oh. where the thread and the needle the button yeah. and the needle is there, so. uh, all this it's it's such it's it, really great locations use the exteriors and stuff, um, and uh, that's a shame. I would have loved to have gone to the, been able to go to the an automat. I, I saw that researching for my last book. I had the automat in there, and I was like, damn, I didn't realize that the automats were uh, around until that time. It's like finding the last phone booths in New York city or something <laughs> yeah, like yeah. that. These things that are going away. Um, so all, it's funny because I, I, since I hadn't seen this movie in all these years that you see these location, then you're recognizing all this stuff. It's so cool to see this stuff in that context. Um, and I've been watching at night. Uh, you've been watching taxi. I've been watching night court. So that's also <laughs> a New York centric show. Yeah. So getting back into night court, you know, it's fun seeing some the stuff from back then. Um, the, now they um they were talking about uh, we're jumping all around in this now yeah. uh they were talking about doing a sequel to this movie which would have been interesting had they done it but i don't know if nowadays if that would be warranted or needed uh it, you know i don't know if it would hold the the esteem or the the feel or look at this movie 30 years removed yeah, now i don't know i think it would be i think people would get excited about it Here's the thing. Bassan had, you know, it's kind of like, you know, uh, Tarantino had said he always wanted to do Kill Bill, like, when the girl, when the daughter is, like, grown up, so, like, way in the future. Bassan had kind of wanted to do a sequel that would be about Matilda and how she becomes a cleaner, and it would be, they were kind of initially waiting for her, for Natalie Portman to get a bit older to do the part. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, reportedly, uh, Luc Bassan left Gamont film company which was a company he was with to open his own film company uh europa corp and uh apparently the uh previous company gaumont was not thrilled with him leaving and so they own the rights the rights to leon so they have kind of like kept them close to the vest and uh even though uh luke Besson had written a script for it he was not you know the idea of making it was just that feasible because he doesn't actually own the rights to the character but uh, allegedly, when he wrote and produced uh, Columbiana, starring Zoe Saldana for 2011, which he didn't direct, uh, and I can't remember off the top of my head who did direct it, apparently that script is kind of, they reworked his Matilda script uh, to kind of become that movie, which is about a, a quote-unquote cleaner um, kind of seeking revenge for the... Uh, you know, the corrupt law enforcement that, uh, or whatever that, uh, killed her family. So, you know, in a way like we that did, I've never seen, <laughs> apparently we got one. I feel like I saw it at the movies, but I, I don't really, it was a period of time where he was dishing out all those scripts and producing movies. You know, he was doing like the driver movies and the, <laughs> the taken the movies and tra- yeah, the transporter. I mean, yeah. Transporter movies and taken. And he was just like, you know, he was doing that ripoff of Escape from New York that he got sued for. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot Car- about that. Carpenter sued him for. So uh, he was just like dishing out, you know, th- script after script and producing all these things there. It would have been cool. I would be into it. I would totally, I'd be, 
It might actually get me to go back to a movie theater to go see that. Um, that might be cool to see how to see her now. You know, I you know being a because then she would be a cleaner now, and that, that that would be interesting. I mean, you'd have to do something different so it just doesn't become if I'm a Nikita or something or you know something have another angle or take on it or I don't know. Maybe you can figure something out where uh, John Renault comes back or something. I don't know. Something <laughs> back cool. from the dead. Back from the dead. You know, it's a supernatural movie. Uh, John, um, John Renault's interesting guy. I didn't really know anything about him other than, you know, that he was a French actor that then in, after the success of this movie here did a bunch of American movies. But apparently he, uh, he, was, he was born in France but grew up in Casablanca. Yeah, Morocco. And uh, then because that was like occupied France or whatever, there was, he ended up being kind of drafted or, or put into the French army. And uh, it was then that he started to think of himself as French. And it was while there he decided that he wanted to be an actor. Um, and he ended up meeting Bassan in the early 80s when Bassan was like, still kind of like a film student or so, or so like hadn't even made a movie yet. He was in his early twenties and, uh, it was that meeting that then they formed a relationship and then Bassan basically put him in every movie for a long time, starting with his earliest movies to, uh, things like subway, the big blue, and then La Femme Nikita. And as Dion kind of insinuated earlier or, or talked about earlier, it was his portrayal as the cleaner in La Femme Nikita that it kind of inspired Bassan to, want to explore a character like that also played by Renault and uh, just, you know, going back quickly as well, over what Deanna had said, he was making, uh, he was trying to get fifth element underway, but it was taking so long that he didn't want to go too long between the Nikita and fifth element. Cause it was going to be years. So he wanted to do something quick. So he apparently wrote the script in under a month of course. <laughs> and then they shot it in 90 days. Uh, but he uh, he wrote the script with Jean Renault in mind, and he invited Jean Renault to uh, dinner at his house with uh, Mai Wen, the uh, the actress we were talking about, who was uh, his, his fiance at the time. And at the end of the dinner, he presented Jean Renault with a present, like, like with a wrapped, with a go ball on it. And John Renault was like, what is this? Thinking it was like chocolate or something. And he opened it up and it was the script. And it's, and I don't oh, know. Wow. The, I don't know if it said Leon or the cleaner or what it was called at that point. But he looked at the script and um, he flipped through it and he looked up at, you know, report allegedly, according to Mai Wen, the, the actress, uh, fiance, says he looked up at Luc Besson with tears in his eyes and he said, I'm ready. <laughs> you know, like, like, like <laughs> I'm ready now. Like, let's do it. And, uh, and so they made this amazing, you know, he took this script and they got going on this movie. Like I said, shot it in 90 days as, uh, most ex uh, exteriors, in New York, most interiors in France. And, uh, one of the important things to this movie, which we kind of insinuated with the relationship between, uh, Jean Renault and Natalie Portman, that chemistry is the cast of this movie is phenomenal from Jean Renault and Natalie Portman to someone that we basically didn't even mention yet, which is Gary Oldman. Nope. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, something that I never knew until now researching and it makes total sense because she always looked familiar to me, but the woman that plays Matilda's stepmother, um, yeah. 
is uh, Ellen Green, who plays Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors and kind of dresses oh. exactly the same. <laughs> She's yeah, like, yeah. She kind of dresses as like a sluttier version of Audrey in the Little yeah. Shop of Horrors movie. Uh, totally mind blown when I when I read that. Um, Michael Bataluco, Batalucho, who yeah. plays her father, was a very familiar face to people of our generation in the 90s. Uh, yeah, he got a little heavier. This is like the movie I saw him in where he's kind of younger looking, but as he's gone on in years, he's kind of getting heavy. Is he, is he One-Eyed Jimmy? Is he in he's, that search for One-Eyed Jimmy? He's, he's not in one. He's not One-Eyed Jimmy, but he, he will always be known for two roles. The, this part <laughs> as Matilda's father and as Joe Head in, <laughs> in one of the search for One-Eyed Jimmy, which is a Joe random independent movie of that of that 90s boom of independent movies that I, I i may have been the only person that knows that that has seen that movie <laughs> well you and i because i saw that on my own as well and then th- this is another thing going back to how weird blake and our our chemistry is so odd because not only did we get paired into a room freshman year and we've said this before uh, both being film students which was odd having similar interests which was odd we also had like you know, we opened our CDs, our music, and we, you know, who else is going to have two Louis Prima albums? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, it's really weird. You know what I mean? We're that we're bringing to college with us, you know? So it was like our, 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 our tastes overlapped that much. It was weird. And, um, you know, like some of the stuff I, I, I was able to just take my CDs home because Blake had the copy of them at, at the, at, that he brought with him to college. So I had seen Search for One-Eyed Jimmy. I think you had a poster for that for a time. I Didn't did. You have a I did. I had found some. Pl- there used to be a guy who used to come to like, where the, like the store that the, the bookstore was, on campus. Yeah, by our library. And like yeah. once a month, this guy would show up with movie posters, and he would sell them. He would lay them out like on the floor, stacks of movie posters, and you would flip through. Yeah, them. I feel and, like I got one from him too. And uh, he had a search for one-eyed Jimmy poster, and I uh, used to have that, and then um, Chris Funderburg of uh, Pink uh, Smoke fame. He gave me his Mallrats poster and uh, which was that famous like comic book cover poster but they both were like this orangey purple motif both search for one eyed jimmy and uh Mallrats so i used to have uh, i think sophomore year i had them hanging out in the dorm because they kind of complemented each other in a weird way they yeah, both yeah. they both had like the same color scheme did you have a did you have a professional poster up as well I feel I like you had like an eight by ten or a, a eleven by twelve, fresh, however that size I is. I think that was freshman year. There was a smaller picture that I had in our room, which was like a Leon poster. Yeah, you had Leon, you had Heat, you had Taxi Driver, maybe Rocky, and I feel like you and that was yeah. you know me staring at your side of the room for a year. <laughs> I feel like that was one of the other ones you had too. Was a um, yeah. maybe a Leon or something. Yeah. Um, the the cast is interesting. I loved Danny Aiello in this as well. I thought he was really cool. Um, he has a very interesting relationship because you kind of it, it, again, it's all Im- implication uh, implied in their performances. Like you could tell he has really genuine feelings, and he's treating Leon like a son or a fa- like a caretaker, a caregiver. Uh, and then he's keeping his money for him, so you gotta wonder if he's gonna give him all the money or whatever. But you know, his relationship—that's interesting—is and then the relationship in the deleted scenes of him with uh, Natalie Portman is interesting. That the, and then at the end of the movie, when she goes to him for help, and he's like, "Come on, he's dead. You gotta get over," it. and she's crying. 
like, you know, it's kind of sad, but it's, you know, they're going to somehow stick together. And that would have been cool for part two that she did kind of take over at his place and are doing hits for, for Tony there. Um, so I thought he was really good in this. Um, the uh, other weird stuff, like the guy, there's a the, the dude with the dreads. Is his name is Willie One Blood. He's like a a real reggae singer and stuff. And it's you know you look at the Fifth Element. Basan put that um, trip trip hop rapper Tricky is Gary Oldman's like um, you know henchman that gets blown up at the airport. You know uh, the uh, the the black guy in that. Um, so in this movie, there's this, uh, weird reggae kind of singer, you know, I guess he's an actor too, who's in this and filling out the role. There's the, um, the guy that we brought up a couple of times, the, 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 the doorman or the guy at the, at the, at the the hotel keeper. He's been in a lot of stuff that I recognize, you know, so, um, seeing him, one of uh, the, uh, one of, one of the remember the scene where they go back to the apartment, with Gary Oldman mm-hmm. and it's like the, uh, I don't know if it's the, uh, internal affairs guys or whatever. He's being interviewed about what yeah. happened. And it's I don't the- have Mickey time for this Mickey Mouse <laughs> bullshit. Yeah. One of the cops in that, like the bald, the, the white balding man with the mustache. Yeah. I never would have picked this up in the nineties, but now that I've now seen silver bullet a million times, that guy's in silver bullet. He plays, uh, there's a, uh, kind of like the inciting incident in silver bullet that makes the mob go after the monster is that this kid gets killed. And it, yeah. And I think he's, oh, the, he's father, the dad, right? He's the dad of the, of the kid that got, that got killed. That makes sense. Uh, and then, uh, the other guy, which I found researching this, which was interesting is the tall guy, Benny in Gary Ullman's guys. Um, that you know that he looks like almost like a bodyguard or a bouncer uh the one that he yells bring me everyone uh he became a firefighter and then he died in 9/11 he died in you know in the in the in the tower collapse he's a firefighter that was killed um so that's interesting um a guy like that and then the other guy uh, i i saw him in a couple other things uh Malky or um, whatever that that gentleman's name was his number one uh henchman uh i've seen him in a couple things um and the other guy, One Eye Jimmy, he's been uh, um, in a, in a bunch of stuff. Um, and then, of course, as we said, you know, freaking Gary Ullman um, in this. Uh, 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 this was one of those roles, I guess. People either you love or you hate of Gary Ullman in this. He's he's overacting in it, uh, which I think is you know fantastic. And to even watching this now, uh, I think he's great in this and it's in his, he's got a lot of subtlety in this. That's, you know, again, stuff that's inferred like, um, uh, you know, when, when, when he, when she follows him in into the DEA building and then, you know, he already knows that she's watching him. That's why he hides behind the door. So that that's interesting or that he knows at the end of the movie, he kind of figures out which way would be the best way for Jean Renault to get out. So he realizes that he'll go down. He won't go this way. The only place he'd be able to go is this end, and this is where I should stake out and wait for him. So um, there's a lot of stuff in it in his his character, which I find fascinating. And there's you know tons of dialogue in this movie that people recite to this day. The Mickey Mouse bullshit. You know, uh, I like the common ones before the storm. Um, everyone, you know, everyone that <laughs> well, you, you, you know, kids, was a- you and I used to say kids should stay in school. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the. Uh- well, it was something just you the line was, hey, that's my ball. Yeah. What was the line? Uh, what does he say? He's looking out the window. 
There's a he does says something. Oh, in bingo, <laughs> bingo used to say that all yeah. the time. Well, people, that's another thing people know because I've said that before. People are like, oh yeah, the professional bingo. He says it with a Jamaican kind of an accent. Well, I that. you know uh, I never knew that this that this performance was uh, controversial in its own way until when we were freshmen in college. He had direct written and directed No by Mouth. Yeah. And so he was doing a lot of press for it at that time. And he was like doing magazine interviews and, um, and I remember I got a, some magazine that he was on the cover of and, uh, he did an interview and he talked about how he hated that performance and how people panned him for that performance. Cause it was so over the top and it was like mind blowing to me. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> because even watching it now, Yes, it's com- he's chewing up scenery like nobody else can in this movie. It's mm-hmm. so over the top in places. It's so bizarre. But he's such a good actor that it's totally grounded in something. Like, it's totally believable. And because even though his performance is so extreme and outlandish, because like what you're saying that this weird subtlety that's kind of underlying it all makes this performance like totally terrifying to me, even now as an adult. Um, no, it's believable. He kind of makes it kind of, you know, I don't know. I mean, he's so out there, even to the sense where it's like his men are scared of him. When that guy, will, when they're in the off in the bathroom and he's like, you know, death is whimsical today. And then he's going to shoot. You don't. The, you or the audience, you know, don't know what he's going to do next. He puts the gun like he's going to shoot Natalie Portman. He thinks against it. He looks at the guy, points the kind of the gun at the guy, and that guy Willie Youngblood's like, "Hey, man, just cool down, just move the gun." You know, he's kind of. Yeah, you could yeah. tell they're all very scared of him, which is kind of. They don't want to. You know, then, you know, when he goes on his killing spree at the beginning and kills the family, you know, they're all kind of stepping in, and he's walking by, you know, going to music in his own head, and they're scared. They they get scared and. He doesn't really give two shits when he's shot, either meaning he, uh, you know, he's the high he's getting off these tablets, the Librium, whatever they say he's taking, uh, which is a, he's taking benzos, I guess they're saying, benzodiabapine, I'm saying that wrong, benzodiabapine, I think I'm, if I say it correctly, that's affecting his pain sensors, but it doesn't matter, he's not in pain that he got shot, he's pissed at the suit, got ruined, but he doesn't care that his, one of his crew got shot in the back and is dead, bleeding out, there's no any, any kind of urgency, he doesn't yeah. kill about care killing children or people around um he comes in you know and he'd just done a mortal beloved which i always remember watching this so i used to always laugh at you know you could tell he's in evidently he improv everything different takes in that scene and it's just so good that what he comes up with when he's talking there and you could see he's doing music on the on the on the the uh on the uh, what do you call that there above the 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 would be the um uh, the mantelpiece, the, the mantel, yeah. yeah, the fireplace. He's doing like piano stuff there, which he probably just learned on a motor beloved. And he's talking about, you know, Beethoven. And it's interesting when you listen to Beethoven, Beethoven always starts off with this big open and then kind of gets into this. And it's almost like, that's how his entrance is. He comes in blasting away and he calms down and he's talking about this eccentricity, eccentricities of classical music, which is a great also, you know, and then his reveal as well, when he's listening to music, you don't want to bust into his and he turns around and he's kind of just weird looking and uh he's always wearing the same outfit he's almost like Kolchak the night stalker he's in that tan out tan jacket he never changes 
Yeah. Uh, he's just so good in this, and it's so people would lambast him for the over the topness of this. And I know we had heard at the time this was like near culminating to the head of when he was suffering from alcoholism. And I do have to admit, like um, a lot of times in the past, I would say Tim Roth doesn't have the best American accent. Sometimes you can hear his British coming through, and in this movie, you can kind of hear in certain scenes uh, Gary Oldman's his cadence as good as he is. And I don't know if that has anything to do with, you know, the other things that are going on in his life at the time, or he's not trying as hard or whatever the hell. But, um, uh, I, I love the over the top performance because I think it makes it classic. It, it makes it great. And it also adds another level to the movie that makes, you know, him worth watching. Cause at the time this was before again, for people, you know, you and I remember, like, Gary Ullman wasn't a household name. People, he would pop up in different things. I had known him at this point because he was in Dracula, State of Grace. True uh, Romance. I'd seen, uh, is True Romance before this or after this? I guess I that would have been. In my head, it's before this, but maybe, maybe you're right. Yeah. Maybe it is after. I don't know. Uh, it might be right around that time. I didn't see True, True Romance until later. I didn't see it when it came out because I read it as a relationship movie. Because when I saw the trailers, they made it. Like two characters, you know, <laughs> so I was like, eh. and then when I realized, oh, uh, what's his face had written it. Uh, that's when I was like, oh, OK, I'll go. I'll ch-. And I loved it after that. But I loved murder in the first one that came out. That was around this time, which is a movie with him and Kevin Bacon and Christian Slater. Uh, and he had done some other stuff around this time. So I knew who Gary Oldman was because we were cinema files in high school. Um, so for him being this bad guy in this, that's just crazy. I really, really enjoyed it. And I thought he was really cool. So well, this was always a positive for him as a performance. And, you know, now people, once he got into doing what Batman, I would say when he became commissioner Gordon, that's when he became kind of, everyone knew who he was, but yeah. to me, he kind of felt like, you know, a, a, a kept secret to a lot of people. Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the things that makes his performance so jarring in this movie and also work is because John Renault's performance is so understated, mm. you know, like as foils, like, you know, John Renault is playing everything at like a three <laughs> on, a, on a scale <laughs> of say, okay, all the time. on a scale of uh, 10 and Gary Oldman's like at 15 sometimes yeah. in this, in this movie. Um, but yeah, it's just it's so grounded in something that feels so real that it's it's so scary. Um, I mean, him in the bathroom with her—it's a great scene. The, the yeah. you know those scenes when he's shining, you know. Because I remember even back then taking such a right turn that you don't realize. You think he's kind of caring about her, but then he says like, you know, do you like life? I take no pleasure taking a life if it's not from a person who doesn't enjoy it. And you realize, oh fuck, he doesn't care, but he's gonna kill her. Yeah, you know, it's, so it's it, it's so much more disturbing. There is this like recognition when she says like, you know, he's like, well, who sent you know? Let me guess, it's a, you know Italian or whatever. Like he's kind of insinuating like, who sent you? And she she says like, nobody sent me. I'm here. He's like, oh, so it's personal. And yeah. uh, there is this moment of when she says like, you killed my brother that. He, uh, you don't know what he's feeling, but there's definitely like something changes and he's either feeling remorse or at the very least surprise, surprise. Like, oh yeah. I think he's like, he realizes like it's surprised that that's what it is. And he under like he accepts it. Like he understands it. Yeah. And like, Okay. He's like, you know what, like what piece of shit thing that I do this time? <laughs> she's like, you killed my brother. And he's like, oh, and so like, 
I don't know if it's respect, but there's definitely like this acknowledgement that like, oh, okay, I understand what you're why you're here. Yeah. And so you you do think for a second, like, what's he gonna do? And then he starts to like touch her lip and stuff, and it just gets so creepy. Yeah, and it's like, and you don't really like it, it's it's so much more scary to think that like he's a DEA agent and he's he's got this team and what's his backstory to get him to where he is now? Like what you know, how far gone has he seen? Like, has he had a traumatizing near-death experience? Has he kind of just been completely, um, you know, just hollowed out by the the evils of society that he's been exposed to in his job? And that's what made him turn bad, and he became a corrupt cop? Because he's not just a corrupt cop. Like, he's he's beyond that. He's a, he's a psychopath. He's a sociopath. He's all these other paths. He's all these, you know, he's just like the stuff he's doing, you know, um... The, the blatant disregard for life uh, or urgency when his people are killed or when the cops come. Well, I think, you know, like, <laughs> you know, look, this is getting into, like, analytical, you know, reading into things. But I think if you were to look, if you were to accept that, uh, sure, you know, a lot of what he did was improvisation. But if you were to accept that the improvisation is based on things in the script, and he's talking yeah. about Beethoven. And even if you yeah. look there, you can sometimes find some of the other takes that he did of that scene. And he's still talking about oh, like really? Beethoven and Mozart. It's just the way he goes about it is kind of different. Yeah. Um, what he says about Beethoven is that he loves the highs, but he finds the fucking yeah. lows boring. You know? Yeah. And if you look at like him as a character, like it seems like it, that's him, you know, like. He lives for, he's got the, the, the crescendos playing in his head as he's going to places, blowing people away. But when he is going through the actual job in the apartment with the, the agents who are like, so how'd it go down? He's bored to tears. Like mm. he doesn't have time for that Mickey Mouse bullshit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally. You know what I mean? Like he is a man of extremes. And when he, when the things aren't at a crescendo, like he's just bored out of his mind with the job and everything. What's also scary is like, he's clearly not just a DH, but he's clearly a man of power. Like he yeah. does, he does. Oh, it's the police. Who cares? We find out that, yeah. that he doesn't care because he's a police officer, but he's not just any police officer. He's a police officer. He's a, he's a DH agent that. Doesn't have time to deal with the bureaucracy of things. He's a BA agent that can call on, get me everyone. You know, like he has that power to just say, like, get me everyone. And the entire, yeah, like, entire like NYPD <laughs> shows up yeah. to kill this one guy for him. Uh, so that's even also the funny. setups of him, like his setups of when he's taking the tablet and the ceremony around the tablet. Uh, and then how they would shoot it, and it's almost like when he releases the tablet in his teeth, he's, it's an orgasm, you know. And that was as a kid, you're like, he brings you right in, you know, and you're like, holy shit, <laughs> you know, you're like, you don't know, you know. And then like his, and then when he takes it again in the bathroom and he gasps a little bit, it's like it's it's brilliant because it's frightening, like you know he's about to, shit's about to go down because he's yeah. like taking his hit, you know. So it's just, um. I always love that growing up and hold that the whole aspect of that. And then, yeah. um, 
which leads in also like the I think a lot of the, the the cinematography and the shot compositions and how they just did stuff. It's sometimes it's like almost like a fish eyed lens that's there. Um, all that works brilliantly, you know, and it's great to see it widescreen because I don't think when we first saw it, I think it was on, you know, video was probably cut. It was pan and scanner. It was I a think horrible. It was notorious. It was a horrible right? pan and scan. I remember that. That was the joke we used. To, yeah, it used to be the the pan and scan was really bad because you'd be panning and scanning within a solid shot. And it was, I think, it, yeah, now you, you said that, I, I'm remembering it being a notorious example of how bad pan and scan could be in a movie that was so wide. Because when you look at the movie, it's not two, three, five, but it's really done well, yeah. the, 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 the frame and how the frame composition is. So it's just such a travesty seeing these movies back then without, you know, um, I see some of the, 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 this is a bit of side venture. I see people now like on Instagram or YouTube, um, these people who are like nostalgic, podcasts or people they have a room in their in their house and they may have like an old cabinet television or something and they're watching vcr tapes and they show you the vcr tape and they play the vcr and they're watching the movie and i'm like that's so great up until the point of me like yeah but you're watching a four 480i <laughs> uh, sd yeah. copy four by three you're not getting the whole thing so you know it's great to see this movie presented widescreen and how it is and then you know, a lot of the shots with him and all this stuff, they just look really cool. And the steady camming and the move, the camera movement is awesome. Um, yeah. It's so crazy. You know, you know. recently um, there was a bit of a controversy because uh, those Fathom events showed John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. Oh, I think I heard about this. But yeah. apparently they showed it in the wrong aspect ratio. It wasn't the 235. <laughs> of course they did. And uh, I was having. Uh, dinner with a friend of mine, Stephen, and he was talking about how he almost went to go see it. He's like, but honestly, he's not as big of a carpenter file as I am. But he's like, honestly, he's like, if I went to go see it, I would, don't know if I would have known the difference. Yeah. And I said, well, because for 20 plus years, we watched the thing, you know, as a square, you know, we, yeah. we watched it on VHS. Most of us, uh, especially people of our age, um, that's how we were introduced to it. You know, we were introduced to it as a, in a, in a square frame, you know, completely chopped off. Whereas Carpenter shoots, you know, super wide, but most of those Carpenter movies, I didn't see super wide until they started releasing widescreen VHSs in the night in the late nineties when we were in college. But I do remember this one was kind of notorious. This one, um, what's the, uh, in the line of fire. That was an awful, uh, mm -hmm. pan and scan dub of that yeah. movie. <laughs> there was a couple yeah. that were noticeably bad even then to be like, what is going, why is this so weird? I think speed. At? Yeah. Cause you'd have a weird, the movement in the frame would just look odd when they would pan within the frame and you'd go left to right. So it'd, it'd be like post-production movement and it just really didn't fit well. Um, yeah, I, I just, you know, uh, it's a great time for for the for the era of the people in it, and uh, you know, it is like like lightning in a bottle because I don't know if you can do a movie like this again and have like the performances be as good. Everybody, I mean, there is it's uh, not to, to to beat it to death, but it's just like there is it's such there's a complexity there which is really kind of fulfilling that you know within the characters the nuance of the you know Gary Oldman's portrayal of. Uh, Jean Renault's portrayal and of Natalie Portman's portrayal that you can read into. I mean, even like the deleted scenes, 
There's a scene when they play Russian roulette at the beginning, and then you know he stops her from killing herself or putting a gun to her head. But then when he gets her to start uh, becoming okay with uh, cleaning people, he gives her a little box herself of like a little briefcase to carry around and it's got like the felt inside or the velvet too to put her little gun in and then there's that whole sequence where um they go into somebody's apartment and it's the that actor who you'd see like in hard to kill like the spanish guy with all the tattoos yeah you know like you used to see him all the time in movies in the in the uh, late 80s 90s and 2000s and that's a sequence where she let he lets her fake kill him with some blood. And then, uh, you know, a, a messed up example is then they start talking and then she's arguing with him and he says something and then John Renault just kills him in front of her. And then they, she doesn't, you know, so it's like it does the level of the, you know, she, he's killing people in front of her too and she's not caring. It's just, it's, it's uh, there's a lot of nuance into this movie and, you know, you wonder where it could have gone if they kept it. And I guess you said, I guess it was because American audiences were uncomfortable with some of these sequences that they cut them. They didn't want people to like laugh awkwardly or not take it seriously. Um, but it's just such an interesting movie for all the just the, the, the levels of 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 the, the, the ideas in it. The like the love story, as you say, the people who were against them, the, the, how they're presented. It's just it, it comes together. And it and I think the most satisfying thing is that when we go rewatch it 20 years removed, that it still holds up. That's always benefit on the podcast because, you know, we watch stuff where it's like, ah, you know, it doesn't hold up as well, but we have such a nostalgic viewpoint of it. Yeah. You know, it is a great watch to, if you haven't seen it in so long. Well, just the thing, you know, you've talked about you know, shot composition and the way, you know, we talked about this European sensibility and, and Luc Besson is kind of like this auteur. I mean, most of the moments that really stand out to me are shot wise are even the, the ones between him and her, you know, one, you never poor Matilda needs to learn never to go out to the grocery store to get bodega to get milk because every time she does something bad always happens when she's going to get that milk uh but when she comes back and she walks by her in the towards the beginning her family has been slain and look she, what you did you killed this little boy yeah and <laughs> she's, walking uh, by. she's walking by and she pretends like that's not her apartment and she walks to the end of the hall which is where john renault lives and she's knocking, she's knocking on the door, ringing the bell, whatever, you know, please let me in, please let me in. Heartbreaking uh, to watch. And he's contemplating. He knows that this is trouble. Like this is like, this is trouble that he's been avoiding sleeping, sitting up with sunglasses on <laughs> for the last 30 years or whatever. Uh, you know, this is going to, this is going to change his life. And he's, yeah. he's hesitant to open the door. We just see her face and she's crying, she's crying. And then the door opens. But we don't see the door open. We see the light yeah. hit her face. Yeah. And, and, she, it, and then her expression changed, the relief. It's like salvation. You know, it's, it is like this, it, the relief. Beautifully, beautiful shot. Beautiful moment. The other really- Well, like, then seconds later after that too, and then right when they st- there's that guy, the most mysterious one out of their crew that's standing out in the doorway, and they say- we missed a little girl, blah, blah, blah. And the guy, Malky, walks away. You see Jean Renault, like, sits her down at the table, goes back, and he's 
He looks out the window, and then you already see that guy, the henchman, walking towards the door. Yeah. Like, he's, you know, he's trying to figure out if that was her or not. So I love that it's already insinuated that he's, you know, and then you see that he's coming up, and then we've always liked, you know, he's looking through the uh, peephole, and he's putting his gun. He's <laughs> yeah. using a, uh, the Beretta 92FS, uh, great, great uh, gun there with a suppressor on it. He's he's estimating where his head would be, you know, so if he needed to shoot him, like, oh, that stuff like that, it's just so cool, you know. Like, when, we, when I remember when we were little, that era of, like, you know, him at the end of the movie when he takes the SWAT team out and he comes down upside down and he's hanging from the ceiling upside down shooting and he goes back up like that stuff was so cool yeah you know we were a little you know uh all the little tricks of the trade like you said him teaching about you know the the knife is the closest thing you're going to learn about you know it's like all that stuff we were, we were eating it up as like young yeah. people but the shot where he goes into the you know the da offices or whatever to save her she's been captured yeah. he tells the cab driver to, to wait for him he'll be right back and he just walks yeah. into that office and kills the two cops and she runs up to him into her, his arms and then how we see that shot is her feet dangling from the ground and like those boots you know yeah and it's just like a beautiful shot you know like the shots yeah, that really stand it. out to me are are the ones that are are about their relationship i mean there's cool stuff where we see you know like we kind of follow the rocket when they shoot the rocket into his apartment, there's yeah. that's a beautifully edited shot sequence that's, you know, uh very unique for that time. Um of course the shot well, the, the extreme close up looking up at him going, yeah, that's what I was right when that you know, it's like it's all the build up to that and all yeah, that, you know. And but it's so dramatic. That montage. You know? yeah, yeah, that's the with the music and that it was to me that was so European. Like, you know, he's putting her down there with the the yeah, the percussion in the background, he's forcing her down there with the plant, and then, like, you know, they're coming around the corner with the rocket, and you hear the musics, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, also it's like, really cool. Just a really beautiful little touch is when he's putting her in the hole, he, he makes the hole for her to yeah. put her down the, the you know, the vent, the ventilation yeah. steps, and they go down. And he starts to put her down, and she's like... It's just like a such a beautiful real moment. She she starts to get out. She's like, it's too small. I barely fit. You're never going to fit. And I don't know. It's just something about the authenticity of that moment, like that line, her 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 delivery of that line. Just is and there's some there's like a beauty to that moment because it feels so real. She's getting in, and she's like, no no no, it's too small. And he's like, no, no, this is like, look, if I'm by myself, I can do this. I can get out, but I need, but like, this is how you got to do it. And then they have that exchange, which I kind of insinuated earlier, which is just gorgeous. And he's like, Matilda, you know, like I never knew how to, like, I wasn't living a life before. You taught me how to sleep in yeah. a bed. <laughs> and, you know, like, like this, <laughs> yeah, this yeah. revelation of like, you know, cause he's telling her and she's like, no, you're just telling me that you're going to be okay. So then I'll yeah. go. And in a sense, he is. But he learned what life is. He's learned. But he's, he's like, learned you know, like you've, ch you've changed. Like I learned how to live because of you. Yeah. Like he's telling her basically, like, yeah, I might not get out of this alive, but know that, like, I was dead inside before you came. And behind the backdrop of this impending danger, mere seconds away from the apartment being exploded in them running in and you know it's like it's so romantic and yeah but it's like <laughs> so you know it's like I, I know how to live now i i like i've i've learned to love life like i've learned to have a life which i didn't have before this because of you uh and yeah. it's just like and like i said her she's like i don't want to i don't want 
you to leave me or whatever she says there is so like yeah you know like you know when you're your parents are gonna Pull like your leave you at camp or something you're like no i don't want you to go yeah. <laughs> like don't leave me well here. she may never see him i mean she didn't end up seeing it but she may never see him again i mean you yeah. know she knows that this is a situation uh you know that he may not get out of i love the whole plant you know that was his best friend the plant and stuff like that and the you know, her then taking care of the plant and, you know, some, you know, her burying the plant at the end about roots. I get the whole thing. People kind of pointed out that that's not the right plant to bury there because <laughs> yeah, it could die. But it's die. like, but <laughs> it's, yeah, ball. but it's, it's exactly. It's like, yeah, she doesn't know that, but she's, tr- and that's horrifying for her to go back and be like, no, it died. <laughs> she, <laughs> that's the relationship. She's, she's like, like, I think oh. we can make roots here. Like, she's now like calling the plant Leon. Yeah, and then then she, the plant dies on her because of the first frost, and she's like, "Ah, look what like, you oh, made me you do! <laughs> look what you did! I didn't want to do this. Oh, we needed that money, Karen. <laughs> Karen, we needed that money. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but there's so many." Uh, Great lines in this movie, you know, um, uh, death is whimsical today, Mickey Mouse bullshit, everyone, and people know by this point, it's been uh, told that that was like a, uh, that was a goof, he was just trying to make uh, uh, Luc Besson laugh, so he told the sound guy, you know, take your headphones off for this next take, and he screamed everyone, you know, he just says everyone, and then, you know, they liked it so much that became that classic line, and Ullman says that's one of the most quotable lines people see him when, yeah. you, when you walk up to him uh, with go ahead and make my day. And he's like, that's not even me. No, I can't. Um, <laughs> but uh, that line, I mean, every scene he's in, he's got a quotable line in that. And yeah. then like you and I used to quote like, uh, you know, the uh, the bingo. And what else? Was, wasn't there a couple other? Yeah. There were I'm a free on Tuesday. You know, it's like all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. You, you know, There's a lot um, of stuff. This is a very quotable movie for us when we were in our yeah, uh, and I And I feel like for people of our ilk too, it was, you know, the whole, the whole thing. And like, it kind of leaves you like it, th- evidently there was a, th- th- they say there was a darker ending to the script. And I don't know what that means if they never shot it or they just went against it, but you learn in the deleted scenes as well, which I think actually works in our favor, not seeing it, what the ring trick is. You see them do with the grenades and stuff. Yeah. So I do like better not knowing that so that, for me, that was like a surprise at the end when he's like, this is from Matilda. And you see, and you realize the implication. And he, he's like, ah, shit. And then he you know, <laughs> blows up, you know. And that's the same. That got me a verbal laugh when I saw the fifth element in the theater. Because at the end of the fifth element, he says shit, too. And then he blows up. It's the same way he dies in both John, uh, Luke Besson movies. Yeah. Uh, but, I, I mean, even that whole sequence there, when, when you think he's getting out, it's all first person, uh, Jean Reno, I mean, and he's walking out, and you see, it's like it's so touching when, with the just the piano, the slow piano, yeah. and you see his shot, you see Gary Oldman come out from behind him, and then you see, uh, you know, the Jean Reno's point of view, and you see the flash indicating, you don't hear a, a gunshot or whatever, you just see the flash of the muzzle, and he falls down, and then... You know, Gary Oldman shooting a 44 Magnum snub nose. So there's, you know, I don't know if he still have a head on him if he shot him that close up, but he's alive long enough to flip him over and have that exchange with him. And then he gives him the present from Matilda, which is yeah. fantastic. And he blows up every grenade on his belt. Even, which is really uh, cool. And kills Gary Oldman, too. Even the, um, the, the, you know, the opening scene where we see Leon at work with the, with the heavy guy with the phone. Yeah. And he puts it in life. The way those, there's two moments. There's that scene, and then there's the scene where it's being recited to Gary Oldman that, you know, what's his face was down in China. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah, and, and like you Malky. see, and you see that there's like, 
that he's supernatural in a way, you know, like beyond he's like Larry, he's like in the shadows. Like he could, you just see that like, he's almost like a vampire. He's he's mythological, you know, and Gary Oldman, Chinatown and Gary Oldman in a sense is kind of like supernatural as well. Like he can smell what you can tell when you're lying. And then he goes over and even, uh, the actor, the guy that plays Joe head and, uh, search for one eye, Jimmy, uh, Bataluccio. He says that he's, he has said that, you know, Gary Oldman, he had no idea Gary Oldman was going to get that close and that he was going to like smell him. So he's like, if I look uncomfortable in that scene, it's, it's like, it's cause I was totally uncomfortable. <laughs> well, does that mean they had to do like a couple, have two cameras going or a, a couple well, setups? I mean, that, we I don't, maybe it was in his first shot. Maybe it was in his, uh, Shot where he did it the first time. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, reaction. and then they just did the Gary Oldman's. Um, yeah, maybe that was it. In in his close ups, Gary Oldman did that, and then in, they just shot the reverse for it. But like he has that uh, sixth sense that she's coming after, like that she's following him. Yeah, you know, like and you know, there's something like they're both these like weird supernatural beings in a weird way. You know, like he's yeah. you know he. Genre knows Leon lurks in the shadows and it just like appears places. And, you know, uh, Gary Oldman's character has like this weird, like psychokinesis, like telepathy that he can tell when people are lying or when he's being followed. It adds like this whole like heightened aspect to the movie that's really fun. Yeah, I, I'd certainly that little uh, vignette of Chinatown where he goes by and you see. Just how it's shot and edited, you know, where you see him put the gun to the one guy's face, and then you see the blowback on the on the China the China tr- trinket, and it just doesn't fall, but it gets blown a little bit. I mean, that's brilliant. And then he comes in, shoots guys, and then the close up is just his mouth and half it. You know, no women, no kids. It's just so. It's all that stuff is so good, and you understand the implications, and you know, and then the idea too that it's like. Gary Ullman is giving work to Tony and then Tony's outsourcing it to people. And then that might mean vicariously at some point, Leon has done work for Tony that Tony was getting for Gary Ullman. So he could have been doing Gary Ullman's, you know, bidding or whatever. So maybe Gary Ullman knows who this guy is. And then, you know, also the complexity of like Gary Ullman, how much of a psychopath is, you know, he doesn't care that there's a kid's party going on at the restaurant he walks right in, puts the gun down, and he's like, you know, he's how pissed he is today. He's like, you know, and he's like, and then a girl this big came in, you know, like that, you know, she's like, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so maybe he does know who this guy is, you know, and or the legend of uh, Leon the Cleaner. And he, I think, doesn't he say at the end, like, because in La Feminiquita, doesn't he say, like, we have to clean them all, I want to clean them, you know, and then is then the, doesn't he say, I thought he said that line too near the end. He's like, we have to clean or kill them all or whatever. And, you know, there's almost a carryover or some of the lines that were said um, to connect those two things. Um, I also thought it's funny, too, that every time they're turning on the the, the TV, uh, uh, you're cutting to Transformers. <laughs> and it's yeah. and it's the pilot. Uh, the first couple times when they're in their apartment, she turns on the TV. Uh, when you see Megatron and stuff, that's the pilot to the uh, to the uh, when the 
Transformers crash and then it's a two-parter. I used to have it on tape and it was then it ends up there's a big fight on the dam and like it's like uh, Megatron and and uh and uh Optimus Prime have like a fight where they like their hands go in and come out and they're like one's got like a mace, the other one's got like a sword and they kind of fight. That's all from that episode. So like I knew I had that on tape so I knew those lines. So it's pretty funny that you know they she's watching Transformers every time. It's either Frank Welker or Peter Cullen coming on there. Um that's really cool. So it's just, it's it's fun. And then the singing in the rain, I forgot that he's going to see, like, so there's an innocence of that where he's, like, he's going to the movies by day, and that's how he vents. He watches old, kind of like what I do. You just watch these old Hollywood movies and stuff, and then, you know, and then later on, you know, there's a callback when she does Gene Kelly, um, yeah. you know, in that thing. So that there's a cuteness there and all that, so... Uh, it's fun. And then I was thinking while watching the movie, how, how, you know, you think of those alternate universes, if they did this in the thirties or forties, you can have Jean Gabin, you know, from the Renoir <laughs> movies, he could play you, directed by Jean Renoir, uh, uh, Jean Renoir, right. You have, um, Jean Gabin as the cleaner and you have like, like a James Cagney or somebody as uh, Gary Oldman's character. And I don't know, maybe we could have like, um, like a young, like Natalie Wood or, or, um, What's her face? Liz Taylor playing like, you know, what's her face? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like young, you know, black, yeah, yeah. Uh, what, black beauty era. You know what I mean? Like whatever that is, Black Stallion, whatever that movie's called. Um, that would be fun as a, as a alternate cast, uh, a fantasy cast. Uh, and then last thing I'll say too, which is funny, when we look these up, you know, uh, and you find the facts on IMDb or you find the facts on uh, Wikipedia or wherever you find stuff. Sometimes when you get to the end of these lists of the trivia, they have just these really assoteric things. It'll be like, um, you know, uh, doesn't really mean anything. Like, you know, Gary Oldman played Oswald in JFK. Uh, Natalie Portman played Jackie Onassis in blah, blah, blah. They've all been in JFK movies. And it's like, okay, that's interesting to know. <laughs> and they had one who played Jack Ruby. Yeah, exactly. He played Ruby and Ruby. So it's like, oh, you're like, oh, that is really weird. There was a fact on IMDb. It's like, um, there's a Ronzoni pasta box on the table. Ronzoni <laughs> made those in 1915. And I was like, okay, that's, I love Ronzonis actually. And I, who knew, but it's just such a weird, you know, like yeah. it has nothing to do with the movie. And then I saw something else uh, as a fact, which I didn't, I didn't see it in the movie, but maybe I just overlooked it because I was writing, uh, when you and I were watching, um, evidently there's the Batman bust in it and the Batman bust, which is the piggy bank. So maybe it's a scene either in the apartment when she's with with her with her brother or something. So there's the there's the 1989 Batman bust, yeah, piggy bank in a scene, and that's the one, the, that's the that's the, the one that we got. It. Yeah, that yeah. came with the box of cereal that we ate. It's like the <laughs> tops. It tops the guy who does the uh, the 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 play cards or the uh, you know the card sets. Tops they did a, evidently an addition to that. And then when we ate the Batman cereal for the Batman '89 uh, anniversary podcast, that came shrink wrapped with the unopened box we had was on the front of it. It was a uh, a, a tops bat. You probably have that somewhere laying. I around do. Here, it's don't in you? the other room. Yeah, we should go get it and you know and and look at it. <laughs> you're like, oh, you're okay. Put some coins uh, in it. Yeah, and shake it all around. So uh, I I don't know. I think I think we've hit everything here. Uh, it, really cool. It's it's fun when we go back watch a movie that we hadn't seen in so many years, and that's now that we're getting on in years. It's insane to me to think I haven't seen this movie in twenty years or whatever the hell. Especially because you know? it was one of those movies that from nineteen ninety four. To like 1998, 2000 or 98, like yeah. four four years, we probably watched this movie 
between the two of us like 20 times. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you combined, shit out of this movie. combined viewings. You know, and that, that was how you just, you know, spend your, your young years just putting a tape in and watching movies uh, over and over again. Uh, so it's fun to, it's, it's weird. To, you know, there's a couple things like we say on the cast a lot. It's weird to like not see a movie in so many years, but then you remember it so well, even when we're talking movies like that are deep dives from our childhood where it's like, you haven't seen it since the eighties and when we were like under 10, but then we still remember the plots or the, the what's going to happen next or a moment before the moment you have the old feelings cause you're triggered. So you know what's going to happen. And it's this weird nostalgic reminiscing or that we know these movies so well. And then we don't realize that all this time has elapsed since we watched them. And then we go back and we're like, Oh crap, I forgot how well I know the lines and dialogue. And it's been this long since I've watched it. It's kind of unsettling. <laughs> Yeah, man. Time flies, brother. It's like, yeah. Like I said, you know, we always say, like, to me, I'm still like the age I was when I met you. It's like that was where, <laughs> like, I am. That's how I am, too. In my, in my mind, we're still like roommates <laughs> in college. Yeah, because you said that to me a couple years ago. You were like, you know, uh, you know, we're not we're not young anymore. We're middle aged. I'm like, no, we're not. And I'm like, well. And then I'm thinking about doing the math. I'm like, but no, we're not. <laughs> we're, st- we're still young. But then, as I said before, I think I said it in our um, in our sidecast we did uh, the other day that it's just I'm meeting people now, and the life isn't stopping. So I'm meeting people now who are like 20, 22, 23, and they're born in '99 or whatever, and they have no grasp for this or they you know these movies to them are before like movies to us before we were born so it's just so weird so weird uh how life goes and you know how stuff is just getting you know i don't know it's just a little unsettling too because there's so much out there there's so much content and we've again we've we've um kind of uh, um uh, meditated on this a lot on the podcast that like, you know, when we were growing up and a lot of people who listened to this were growing up, were kind of a captive audience if you liked it or not for entertainment. So that even if you didn't like the Beatles or you didn't like the Rolling Stones, you, you had a frame of reference of who they were because since you were a captive audience, you were exposed to, you know, we knew who Frankenstein was and we knew who Bela Lugosi or Boris Karloff's version of them were Dracula and Frankenstein because we'd see them. Nowadays, I don't think that's happening anymore because there's such an onslaught of material and media and and things for people to watch and streaming and you know, video games are more popular than movies that I don't know if people are having that collective memories in childhood. So people are not going to know themselves or have these connections that we find that our, the people who listen to us share with us because of that collective childhoods. I don't think people are having that anymore because you're down. Everyone has their head down their own rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah. You know, they're into what they like. There's so much, you know, there's so much variety, you know, it's, we're kind of inundated with, uh, it's just a lot, whether it's, you know, you can watch YouTube, you can watch streaming. There's like all these million things you can just like, you know, spend time watching people's videos on Facebook or, or twitter it's just like it's we're just like oversaturated with things to watch that yeah there was like a simplicity and like you said we were and we've like we've talked about frequently on this show over the years like it's like there there is something to have been a captive audience <laughs> because yeah, now and- now that the entire world is at our finger fingertips it's like you don't need to know anything anymore in a, in a weird way no. like before it was like, yeah, like we couldn't watch anything we wanted, but we were forced to watch what was there. And so whether it was television or what was in the video store, like you just, 
you know, we, it was we, a, a lot of times that helped you like this stuff. You were forced to be exposed to it like green eggs and ham. And then you're like, oh, I really like this because of that. <laughs> and people may not get that opportunity now because they're not being forced to, you know, like I, I know people who, um, and you were talking this to, to this about your nephew in the past, but I know friends of mine who have children who they tell me their children, you know, they watch YouTube and on YouTube, they watch people play video games. They don't play the video games themselves. They watch other kids play the games or they yeah. watch people, you know, so they're, wa- and then they don't have the, um, even the, the, uh, the attention span to watch a movie start to go because you live in a world where you just put on what you want. You stop it when you want and you don't sit, you know, people may not classically turn a traditional TV and watch television on anymore because you can just have everything at your, um, whatever device you have in your hand. And I don't know, I find it all very off putting and it's, it's kind of almost frightening to me. So I'm kind of just stepping back from, it's getting me more like pushback from reverse from society. You know, I'm going down my own rabbit holes. Well, look, you know, it's a time, this movie, Look, we, we, being teenagers in the 90s, you know, those are really like the formative years. Like, that's when you start <clears throat> to develop t- real actual tastes and things, you know, like yeah. the music that you start to fall in love with in at that age is the music that you're going to kind of love for the rest of your life, for the most part, you know? And so seeing something like this when we're like 14, 15, 16, you know, we obviously have a different relationship to this movie than someone who's seeing it for the first time now who's, you know, in their 20s or an adult. You know, it's like, like that, that's just, it's a time when you're, your mind's a sponge and you're just, you know, ingesting everything. And that's, like I said, it's like when, as you're becoming an adult, it's that time period. So like, yeah, you know, like I still listen to Black Sabbath music, you know, that was when I discovered Black Sabbath, you know, like, you know, before that was Billy Joel. I still listen to Billy Joel, but like, that's the, you know, yes, you add things to that list as you get older and your frame of references change. And that's why, like we've talked, I'm sure we brought it up on the Rocky podcast or it's been talked about a lot. Like, it's really interesting to sometimes revisit a movie that we saw as teenagers and we love the teenagers as an adult, because you can have yeah. a totally different reaction to it now because your frame of reference to life and the things you've seen is so much different than it was then. But this yeah. is a movie that watching it now, like, I don't think my feelings really changed. I was, no, no. I was, cl- I was glad to see that it held up. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't seem terribly dated and, the emotional aspects of it still are present for me. And it was kind of almost enlightening to see that like, wow, like I feel like maybe as a teenager, I was more emotionally mature than I think I maybe thought I was because I, cause like I'm viewing this as an adult and still connecting with the same things that I did then. But I think those are things that are, things that a teenage kid doesn't you wouldn't expect a teenage kid to really connect with you know like the emotional elements of the story and and the relationship and and having like a weird mature aspect of it it's like i was almost proud of myself the 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 teenage version of myself for having those feelings about this movie then as i watched it now so when I'm watching it now and I'm like, wow, Natalie Portman's really hot. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> that's, not, that's not even a joke about that. 
<laughs> and you're like, hey, hey. I was like, well, I found her hot when I was little. Uh, it's that's the old Alyssa Milano commando joke. Um, but yeah, so it's I, yeah, it's it's ple- it's presently su- pr- surprising when we have these movies that we watch and then they just hold up and they're nice and it's good and they're nice uh, and it's it's a good one to take care. of. It's a good one to to cover. And uh, we did the Fifth Element on here, which was the movie I think he did after this. Um, so if you want to go check that out, um, you can go listen to that and you can pick up right where we leave off now with that, that next movie with Bassan was doing at the time and Gary Ullman's, um, I think he was what he needed money for Nell by mouth. Right. So that's why he did, um, he might've did that or he was paying a favor back to Luke Bassan for something. And, uh, you know, uh, and then I, I forgot taken was, uh, that started, that was almost like a die diehard, you know, the taken was the diehard of that era because you had what a decade of, of um, it made Lee, uh, Liam Neeson a freaking action we're still, star. We're still getting um, Liam Neeson action still, movies. Yeah, I just watched. The, I, yeah, I watched the one a couple uh, a couple weeks ago of him in Alaska being like an ice road trucker. That was kind of interesting. These movies, um, but yeah, so it's that you know. I mean, I, that's kicked off a whole subgenre, which, which kind of maybe even gave us John Wick or whatever the heck it is. So um, it's 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 interesting. I didn't realize, and then I have not seen that Valerian yet. Uh, Valerian, Valerian. I want to see it. Uh, because that was based off all the um, artwork that he kind of used that inspired Fifth Element, the guy who did. It's almost like a Ralph McQuarrie kind of uh, Mobius. Yeah, you well, know, that's a whole other Mobius who we brought up. You know, in, um, that's a whole angle that we didn't that even was. discuss. Now is like you know the other movie that was. This was like we said earlier. This movie was called The Professional for us when we were growing yeah. up. The other movie that was The Professional that I first saw as a teenager was Golgo 13, The Professional. And he's a. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot he, about that. And he's an assassin slash hitman. And that's a movie we've considered doing on this podcast. And there is, like, there's definitely, obviously not content wise, but stylistically, there's definitely, like, correlations. And I don't know. It's a far stretch to say that, like, Luc Besson was inspired by it, but it's clear that Luc Besson was inspired by things like comics and things, whether it's Valerian or yeah. even, you know, some of the, just the stylistic things in fifth element. So it's not out of c- the complete realm of possibility that he had seen. No, the, because we'd seen 13. it at that time. Yeah. I mean, that was, in hey, the those 80s. were big, you know, that movie, that movie. Yeah. That, and, I mean, it was an, and it was a manga going back to like into the seventies and earlier, but, uh, that, that V that, uh, anime movie was like a, was like a yeah. mid eighties kind of like classic. So he might have seen like it's like seeing Akira. It's like they, you know, that could have been very well something on the list of people and him being a filmmaker or a cinema uh, a cinema file who was seeing foreign films. He very easily could have saw that. And I forgot about Gogo the Thirteen. Um, that that's something that we were gonna do. We were thinking about doing on We've here the anime. About that would have it, been yeah, fun. That's a- I watched that a couple years ago, and that was still uh, that that's a good watch. That's a fun movie. Yeah, I, I want to go back and watch Ninja School again, the original Ninja School too. <laughs> My dream um, movie is that someday I want to make to a make live, live action live action Golgo thirteen movie. And you know, at the time, I was huge into the Punisher and comic book reading. At the time of this movie coming out, so this was all right up my alley. This kind of action heavy, you know, hitman assassins doing stuff. I mean, this was this was like a young Dion's wet dreams at the time. This was really fun. Uh, but that would be a that would be a fun fun to do, you know, because I'm not a huge anime fan. I kind of nowadays it's become this huge industry that you know kind of is intimidating. But those older movies like that, um, there's there's certain f- um, foundational movies I really dig, you know. 
uh, even to some of the French movies, that movie, um, you know, the, the triplets of Belleville, that, that director, I forget what his name is. He's done a, that's a French movie. Those are, are certainly great, but I forgot about Google the 13, the professional. So, uh, yeah, it was cool. You know, you know, even down to his outfit, you know, that'd be a great Halloween costume. You get your daughter. You know, yeah, and that's, I'm you sure, know, I'm sure somebody's walking around. Done it. Somebody's had to have done that. You know, give her the little glasses and a little beanie hat and the plant, you know, having her walk around and you have that trench coat because he kind of has like an, almost the Ed Norton kind of look, you know. Um, so this was really fun to come back on. And they, this was a fun experience coming back and sitting down in your attic here and recording this uh, son of a bitch, this <laughs> motherfucker. This son dirty. of bitch. Beep. This son of bitch. Um, so maybe we should c- put a list together of other movies that we might, you know, um, hit people over the head with and surprise them. Yeah. Um, like I said, you know, you know, we don't. We have no. We don't have a schedule. We don't know when we'll be back, but uh, we're back. I think primarily we're back because people have been nice enough over the last year and a half, two years to, to continue to stay in touch with us, whether it's through private message on social media or emailing the, uh, podcast, the email page. And, um, there was at some point, it's like, nice to hear we were getting, there was the, and they comes in waves, which is interesting. Yeah. Like we'll get like a bunch at you one know. time. And at some point, you know, earlier in the summer or, or late spring or whatever, we got a bunch of like really nice, emails and i just like dion and i like texted each other at the same time and we both read them and it was like the emails came cross paths on in cyberspace on the way to each other's like should we should we do one this summer yeah and then the summer got away from us so yeah that's that's now that's what life is and uh it's certainly nice to have um to think that people are listening to us and then you know they're doing you always hear people you know, thank you for feeding my boring time I had to to spend or if I had something to do or if I'm doing menial tasks or commutes or even people who say, like, you helped me out of a bad time in my life or helped me get over this or I had A, B, and C going on and, you know, I could fall back and get all, get your, my, my, my mind off of it by listening to you guys talk about movies and stuff. So that's always been very gratifying and beneficial. And, again, thinking that people have gone and, like, listened to the, an episode more than once or go back and binge or yeah. listen to – that you, we get people a lot who say, I've just started listening because I, whatever, and I've gone to the beginning and I'm binging all the episodes and it's like, holy crap. Yeah, like they're just now discovering endeavor. the show. Yeah, and they're going back and finding them all. So that's uh, that's great. So, you know, as I like to uh, encourage everyone to please reach out, tell us, you know, what you think, what you like, what you don't like. Um, uh, let us know your favorite episodes. Let us know what you think was cool, what you like, or what maybe, you know, if we, if we come back, you know, what you'd maybe want to have us do or check out uh or try to tackle and um you know as we say you know the if you want to support us uh a great way by doing that is buying our books online which are on amazon um in paperback and ebook um and uh you can find our stuff there um the blake you have your your project that's coming off the ground here yeah and just basically in a nutshell i'm trying to turn my score to death books into a documentary and uh basically running through october of 2022 will be a a, a crowdfunding campaign so if you're at all interested in supporting that uh or helping that become a reality and you're listening to this in time to contribute if you so choose to contribute uh you know you can always follow me on social media at scored to death um whether it's Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, and I'll have information and links to the crowdfunding campaign 
And if you miss it, you know, that's okay too. I still love you. <laughs> and uh, just keep your eye out. Hopefully by 2024, we'll have a movie uh, to see based on uh, a documentary based on those books. But um, yeah, that's basically my my concentration of uh, focus right now is to make sure I, uh, you know, try to get this movie off the ground and then getting it made. So, uh, you know, stay in touch and, uh, you know, support if you, uh, if you can, and if you want to, and, uh, if not, we're so glad that you, uh, support us by listening to our, yeah. our, our goofy talks. Yeah, it's fun. Thank you for everyone also for just reaching out and, and uh, you know, how great that is. And we like that we still have the community and we maybe we can put some of this community back together. And, uh, you know, we hear from people of all different walks of life. And uh, if you're also someone who's in the industry for, um, you know, we talk about film or whatever, hell, give us a call. You know, we've got some <laughs> stuff we'd like to to get moving. You know, we've got some, um, you know, books and ideas and screenplays and stuff that we'd like to um, at least show to some people. So if you know anybody who's into that kind of thing, you know, um, drop them a dime and tell them, um, you know, we're, we're, we're looking to take um, – to take on those aspects. So, um, uh, this has been fun and yeah, hopefully soon we'll come out with something else. Um, maybe by the end of this year, I don't know, maybe for October, maybe for next week, maybe for a year from now, who knows? Um, we just came out with that side cast and this is the second one, the official unofficial kind of uh, lost episode or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, It it seemed like, you know, September of 2014 is when we started. It's now September ish of, 2022 it seemed like if we were going to do something uh even though we kind of got away from our anniversary topic of uh comic book and uh pulp pulp uh, novel characters but uh, we wanted to do something to commemorate uh our time as podcasters and to say thank you to uh everybody who has been supportive uh and listening so thank you yeah, and, it, and it's uh, by doing something that we, we, you know, that we both hold so dearly in our hearts, a uh, groundbreaking movie for us coming together and for our um, our combined childhoods. So um, we will talk to you all very soon. <laughs> <laughs> we hope everybody stays safe out there and uh, keep smiling, you know. And uh, you know, when when life starts to get you down, we're always here for you. So come listen to us and listen to our mindless banter about um you know this uh crazy shit uh, movies and stuff like that and all that stuff and uh we will uh talk to you all very 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 soon later <laughs>